to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. I'm happy to welcome to the show for the first time author, podcaster, historian Brian R. Solomon. We're going to talk about, mainly in the first part of the show, uh, his book on the Sheik, Blood and Fire. I figured what better way to talk about scary wrestlers around Halloween time that you really have to start with the Sheik, and since Brian wrote a book on the Sheik, he's the perfect person to have on the show. So we're going to talk about the origin of the Sheik's uh, career, how he got started wrestling while he was uh, in the service during the war, how that transitioned to uh, him creating the gimmick, and the famous movies from the 20s and 30s that were actually inspiration to his character. We talk about the growth from you know being on television in the 50s to buying Detroit, becoming a big star. We're also going to talk loads about his career in Japan, a bunch of other things. Uh, Brian is working on a book about Gorilla Monsoon. There's also a lot of talk early in the show about Monsoon, which just kind of happened that way. We talked about... Uh, how a lot of guys with crazy or scary gimmicks actually had legit amateur backgrounds, which includes both Ed Farhat and uh, Gino Monsoon. So we also, uh, along the way, had a really interesting conversation about uh, the Sheik and his role as uh, someone playing in a Middle Eastern character, and the things he did and didn't do, considering he was a big star in the 70s, and how he never really did um, an anti-American Middle Eastern gimmick, the kind we associate with Sheik Adnan LKC, and certainly the Iron Sheik. Um, if you want to hear more about that, go back into the archives and listen to the show that my friend Ashraf Khalil and I did, where we talk about Sergeant Slaughter's uh, Iraqi sympathizer uh, angled during the Gulf War in 1991. Uh, so anyway, back to the Sheik. We talked about a lot about his career, uh, the, including the territorial war with the Bruiser, how that began, how it ended, how they ended up teaming up. A bunch of really wide-ranging things talking about the Sheik and his career. Um, then we did a lot of talk about this year's Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame ballot, since both Brian and I have votes. We talked about who we did and didn't vote for, our theories about how the Hall of Fame is structured and how voting is done, uh, how we both are not in favor of voting for active candidates and some changes we'd like to see Dave maybe make in the future to remedy some of those situations. Um, near the end, we did a bunch of miscellaneous stuff. We talked about some comics. Uh, Brian's written a couple books on comics. He also wrote a book on Godzilla. We didn't get into that. We also, in and out, talked about um, old wrestling magazines, since one of the things Brian did in his past career was he worked at WWF Magazine or WWE Magazine, whichever it was, while he was there. So we talked a lot about um, the aftermags, especially their use of blood in the 70s and how that changed over the 80s by the time he and I both started buying magazines off the newsstand in the mid to late 80s. Uh, this is a wide-ranging and really interesting conversation that we had. I'm definitely glad I had Brian on the show. 
And there's so much more that we could talk about that we didn't get into. So I certainly hope he'll come back in the future and maybe talk about wrestling, maybe talk about comics, maybe talk about horror movies, or all of the above. So I'm really glad Brian was on the show. Make sure you check out his podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle. He always has a lot of very interesting guests, um, people from the magazine world that he worked with. Um, He's also sort of developed a niche of having... Uh, relatives of wrestlers on that I found interesting. He did a really interesting show with Bobby Heenan's daughter that I would definitely recommend going and checking out in his archives. That Shut Up and Wrestle, which is part of Brian Lass' Arcadian Vanguard Network. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. back to the Winter Palace. Our spooky content for Halloween continues. When I was trying to come up with show ideas for our guest today, it seemed the perfect synchronicity to discuss scary wrestlers. Because that's, and that's scary in and out of the ring. And the number one reason to do that is because he just happens to have written a book about, I would say, maybe the scariest wrestler in history. Again, both in and out of the ring. So to talk about that, uh, and probably a bunch of other wide-ranging popular culture stuff, uh, wrestling and not wrestling, I'm very happy to welcome for the first time the author of Blood and Fire, the biography of the original Sheik, Ed Farhat, um, writer, author, editor, podcaster, historian, whatever else you may have uh, on your byline, Brian Solomon. Welcome to the show, Brian. Yes, thank you, Mark. Glad to be here and, and talking about all this great stuff with you. It's funny that uh, I've noticed between like following you on Twitter and sort of listening to your pod, it's like it's funny like you're one of these people that it seems like we check so many of the same boxes because when we were trying to figure out what to talk about today, I was like, well, we could do this, we could do this, we could also do this, we could do this, and I'm like, this is way too much for one show. So it's like, I'll say up front that we probably will not get into geeky magazine talk, because um, I know you actually have a background in that, plus I know you're also, like me, a big fan of like sort of the classic uh, after magazines and other mm-hmm. uh, other magazines from there. So we probably won't get to that, so I will hopefully tease that for the next time you're on in the future. But uh, yeah, so I figured, I was thinking scary wrestlers, I mean, cause especially because re- reading the book, and I was like, I can think of a, like maybe a handful of people that would apply, but obviously I think the Sheik has to be number one on that list. Yeah, and I mean, you know, he goes back to a day, a time, when the heels, the really monstrous heels, were genuinely scary. I mean, for real. You know, I, to fans, I know like Bill Apter has talked about this, how um, and I interviewed him for both books, the excuse me, for the Sheik book and the new one I'm doing now in Gorilla Monsoon, who, as we know, started in the WWF as a heel. 
But Bill talked about how, you know, back then it was no laughing matter. Like, like fans were genuinely afraid, even if a lot of the general public, even back then, might have scoffed at it. The wrestling fans who believed and who came to the shows, they were genuinely afraid of these guys. And the Sheik, yeah, is has got to be at or near the top of the list. Abdullah the Butcher, his great protege and friend slash enemy, has got to be near the top of that list and and they those guys could part a crowd you know just by turning their head in in, in a certain direction well it's one of the things that i thought was funny when i was coming up with like a list of you know scary intimidating whatever and a lot of times they're they're gimmick wrestlers but it's funny how many of them actually have really strong legit wrestling backgrounds the you know the the sheik you mentioned gorilla I was thinking George Steele, Baron Von Raschke, all of these guys were like, you know, high school or better champions. And yet, when they get in the business, they get these, you know, monster, crazy foreigner, crazy guy <laughs> gimmicks. But yeah. like that they never, like a lot of times they didn't get to showcase their skills. Although, I was watching some of the 50s stuff that's available on, online from The Sheik. And he does seem to be a bit more catch as catch can, like in those sort of in that Chicago stuff that's online. Then yeah. certainly he became famous for later. Well, he didn't have to do it later. So in the fifties, when he's still a mid carter, he doesn't really have any like say political power, that kind of thing. He's sort of at the whim of promoters, and he's trying to impress people. And you know, he he is wrestling a conventional style match that, you know, that he's working. He's doing some of his character stuff here and there, especially at the beginning and all that. But when the bell rings, he's wrestling, you know, he's re and he's wrestling as a heel, but he's wrestling. And uh, in later years, he didn't do it because he didn't have to do it. It's like the, I have a story in my book about how when his son, Eddie Jr., wanted to learn how to wrestle. And he said to his dad, like, I'm going to have to find somebody to teach me. And his dad's like, what do you mean find somebody? He's like, well, you don't know how to wrestle. <laughs> and he took him, he took his son in the ring and he's like, really? All right, let me show you some things. And he just tied him up into knots. And Eddie Jr. goes, well, dad, I, I didn't know you knew how to do all that stuff. Why don't you do all that stuff on TV? And the sheet goes, well, I don't need to. <laughs> I don't have to. And so that that's that's the reason. And in some cases, like somebody like Gorilla Monsoon, um, when he started, you know, Bob Morella, like you said, he he almost made the Olympics. He almost made the 1960 Olympics. He was one of kind of the runners up. Uh, he was he was he finished uh, first runner up in uh, NCAA Division three heavyweight heavyweights in 1959. I mean, he was serious. He was legit. And when he first started as a pro, they initially when he was just called Bob Morella or Gino Morella, they would call him. He, they would try to capitalize on that because people still knew who he was. He was kind of a national amateur wrestling star, and they tried to capitalize on that, but it just didn't work. Uh, it couldn't get over. He was big and scary, and they were trying to promote him as this baby face, like, you know, uh, apple pie amateur wrestling champion. And it wasn't really working. Uh, he wasn't credible against the you know the other wrestlers because they were all smaller than him, and so they were just like, "We need to make you a monster heel. It's it's the only way to go with you. We can't, you know, you're not going to be Danny Hodge or something." And so 
that's the route they went with him. But, you know, he was another one of those guys. He he didn't do the amateur stuff because he didn't need to. But you better believe that he knew how to do it when he had to. Yeah, it's funny. Sort of like in that era, you really don't have, like, super heavyweight baby faces unless they're, like, an attraction. Because it's like you sort right. of, like, you see that film of, like, Chris Taylor when he was in the AWA. And it's so weird to have, like, such a giant baby face, especially, like, an Olympic, you know, quality wrestler. And you're like, it doesn't sort of fit the formula of wrestling to have a giant technical heavyweight, at least back why, then. Well, that's why Chris Taylor didn't really work out, you know? He's like, he he was the classic example of um, a very successful amateur who could not make the transition and who just flopped as a pro. And some of that might have been Vern Gagne because he didn't really know how to market him and because he insisted on having him be this squeaky clean baby face amateur wrestler. And, you know, uh, he, he didn't know what to do with him in that role. Um, but, yeah, back then, I mean, that was the big thing with Gorilla where they said you can't. You know, he'd they'd have him in there with these smaller guys, and he's trying to sell for these guys, and it just doesn't look believable. It looks ridiculous because back then, especially, there weren't a lot of forget about wrestlers. There weren't a lot of people as big as as Gino Morella. So it, when he's selling, you know, it looked kind of ridiculous, and so they started thinking, okay, you need to be the aggressor. You know, you need to be the one that's hurting other people. And in order to do that, we have to make you a heel, you know? Now, I I don't know. Um, I guess we can sort of talk about this now while we're on it. Um, I don't know if I've ever heard this story, but how did he or Vince or whoever decide that he was going to become be from Outer Mongolia? <laughs> Actually, Manchuria. Okay, Manchuria. Manchuria, which um, – well – it's it's interesting. Uh, as a lot of people may know, maybe not, uh, he was Italian-American. Uh, Gino Morello was Italian-American. In fact, <clears throat> when he was calling himself Gino, you know, his birth name is Bob, and they called him Gino to further accentuate that he was Italian. When he was first starting out in upstate New York, in Toronto, in, in Calgary, when he was starting out in places like that, they were trying to appeal to the Italian fan base. And when he came to New York, it literally was a situation of, you know what? We don't need any more Italians. Like we have we have so many Italians. We, we don't want another Italian. We have, you know, I mean, it was a revolving door back then. They had Antonio Puglisi, Ilio DiPaolo, of course, Bruno San Martino, uh, Dominic Danucci, Gino Brito. I mean, there were all these guys. Uh, even Baron Mikel Cicluna, who they made Maltese, you know, they they, they made to, to basically because they wanted him to be a bad guy with with Gorilla or Gino at the time. They they just said, we, we don't we don't need another Italian. And not only that, but if, if we want you to be a heel, which we do, we definitely can't have you be Italian because, you know, half the audience is Italian. So we don't want them getting on your side. So. They came up with something just completely outlandish because he was so big and monstrous looking. They came up with this gimmick that he was just some wild man, um, you know, from from the Far East, which is hilarious. But the story goes that, you know, Bobby Davis, who was the his first manager in the WWF, 
Bobby Davis's story, uh, you know, in storyline was that he traveled, you know, to the wilds of Manchuria, hearing about this this wild man living in the, you know, in the wild and eating raw meat. And and he supposedly found him swimming naked in like an ice flow, you know, and recruited him that that that, that kind of crazy story. And, uh, you know, he, he spoke no English. Yeah, he never spoke in his promos. His manager spoke for him. He was like this animalistic brute. And especially back then, you know, to an American audience, it was almost like it was like what they would do with people like Kamala or Killer Khan. And, you know, where there wasn't a firm command, I think, on foreign cultures and things. And they weren't that concerned with it back then. Uh, and, and they turned him into, you know, this Manchurian, which the interesting thing about Manchuria, and I don't know how much thought they put into this, but, you know, Manchuria doesn't exist anymore. Manchuria is part of what's now China. But Manchuria ethnically it was uh, really partly what we would think of as Chinese ethnically and partly Russian. It was kind of on the border. And so I think in part they were able to get away with that a little bit more with him because he doesn't look, you know, he has an interesting look partly because he had severe visual impairment. I mean, he was extremely nearsighted and it gave his eyes this weird kind of look to them that made people think, well, we could sort of sell you as at least partly Asian, but the Manchurians are also, were also considered partly Russian. And if you look at some of the early uh, clippings and things like I have, when he was wrestling San Martino, they were actually positioning it as United States versus Russia. It wasn't even so much like they were trying to say that he was Chinese as almost that he was like representing the Russians, you know, in this Cold War era. So, I mean, it, it was a back then it was really kind of bizarre how they would come up with these foreign gimmicks. But it's something that worked for him. I mean, he was the hottest monster heel. He was the original WWF monster heel. Period. And plus, I, I assume this is what the late sixties we're talking about, probably. Sixty three when he first came. Uh, well then well then that's right after the Manchurian candidate too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've got a well, I would I mean, certainly a well known book and then, you know I guess you sort of have to look historically about because, you know, Manchurian candidate was famously shelved Right, because it came out like right before the Kennedy assassination. So, right. And so, yeah, so it was very hot button. Like we can't have a film where, you know, we have somebody brain, you know, somebody brainwashed by the communist China to kill a politician right after Kennedy gets shot. Right. The story was that Sinatra actually personally saw to it that the movie was shelved. Right. Yeah. Because. Because I remember it was a big deal when they finally released it on, I guess, video probably. Because like there's actually because yes. there's like a documentary with Sinatra and maybe Frankenheimer and maybe Axelrod talking about all that stuff. But yeah, so that's, I guess it's you know it's probably no different. Again, you're talking about how people don't really understand world geography. It's sort of like Archie Goldie being the Mongolian stomper. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, you know, somebody else who's on my list of scary wrestlers. You know, I think isn't like Brad Hart famously said like Archie Goldie gave him nightmares when he worked in Calgary because 
Yes. Like, he, like, threatened to, like, beat up his parents and come to his house and burn his house down or something. And you can see, like, you're a little kid how scary Archie Goldie would have been, especially right. especially when he was allowed to do promos in Calgary. And Brett said that uh, one of the things that finally got him to begin understanding the business and what it was, was he said as a kid, he remembered Archie Gouldy coming to the house to get his paycheck. <laughs> and he came to the front door and, um, you know, they didn't make a big thing out of it. I don't even think he came in the house, but he just, you know, um, Helen Hart answered the door and handed him his check and he was polite. He got in his car and drove away. And Brett is a kid, and he's, like, watching through the banister, you know, <laughs> looking at this going, like, wait a minute. This is the guy who said he wanted to, like, burn our house down, and, and, and we're paying him, you know? And it was the beginning of, of Brett's kind of smartening up process. <laughs> That's great. But, yeah, I love I – love, I feel we may be talking about the Stomper later, depending on other things we talk about. But the, back to the Sheik, like you said, he yeah. was – he – I guess learned to wrestle while he was in the service during World War Two, right? He and he was he a champion or like yeah. a close to champion? He was, yeah. I think even before the war, he was wrestling as a kid. You know, back then the YMCA's were so popular for young men. You know, it was a way to get kids off the street. And you you read a lot about wrestlers of his generation first getting exposed to wrestling in the YMCA's. And he started there as a teenager doing a lot of sports and wrestling was one of them. But it was when he went into the services when he really started to excel because he actually won. Um, I'm not totally sure what weight division he would have been at that time. I think he was about 175, but he won the championship of the European Theater of Operations, which was a really big deal for the in the U.S. Army. And um, he was able to kind of use that as a bargaining chip when he got out of the service. Cause when he got into pro wrestling, even though he hadn't been a, a, a star wrestler in the way that monsoon was in college, but uh, they used that as part of his gimmick. Here he is this hometown boy, you know, before he was the Sheik, when he was just Eddie Farhat, <laughs> this hometown boy made good. He went over, he served in the war. Now he's back. He was the champion wrestler of the European theater of operations, the ETO. And now He's wrestling in our local neighborhood armory, you know, the Prudent Auditorium, which was this little ramshackle building right across the street from the town hall in Lansing. And that's when he first got his start there on these weekly cards as, you know, um, G.I. Eddie Farhat. It's kind of funny. It reminds me of sort of how um... – Jim Weeby was like, you know, a college football player in Texas. And, you know, when, he, when like, when he started, he was just like sort of a clean-cut babyface type. You know, and then it's funny because, like, I was when, like, uh, when Al published his first book on the McGurk territory, and it's like you're reading all this stuff about, like, Hodge and Akbar, and, or, you know, if he was Akbar yet, we're teaming up and all this stuff. And I'm like, I like it blew my mind like how long he was a babyface in that territory before becoming like the Skandar Akbar that like we would come to know in the eighties. Yep, and he was in uh he wrestled for Capital 
under his real name too. Uh, and I think they had him as kind of an ethnic baby face. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes it works and so, a lot of times it doesn't like Danny Hodge was the great example of where you could have him playing off of his amateur credentials and being a squeaky clean, all American baby face. And it works, you know, it worked in the case of Danny Hodge. They didn't have to make Danny Hodge into some kind of a maniac, you know, but, um, a lot of the times it just doesn't um, it doesn't click. You know what uh, wrestling fans crave mayhem and violence and <laughs> they don't always want to see, you know, pure scientific wrestling. In fact, that's why even back then they would rarely book babyface versus babyface matches because people wanted the chaos. <laughs> well, it's also funny, too, that you get guys like him. Like when they would go and be, when they would go places and be heels, well, like they didn't really change their gimmick; they just became really arrogant about it. You know, I think, you know, like Gene Lewis did their, you know, did the same thing with, you know, like you know, Ron Fuller's talked about it on his podcast of doing like that thousand, you know, like sort of shooter challenge. Like you have yeah, guys doing shooter challenges. You know, you pin me, you get you know a thousand dollars or whatever and you know so you get guys like hodge and things like that where like sort of like being this scientific marvel because actually makes you a bad guy in some ways bob uh, bob roop was kind of in that category too where he was like the sadistic shooter you know and then when you hear stuff about the snake pit you understand you know right. like it you know it might be sort of more fitting for, for for more friendly for then like say when like Jack Briscoe had to like go in the snake pit and and wrestle fans or whatever. Right. Well, Roop was kind of like Eddie Graham's policeman. I mean, really. And 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 he's said in recent years that you know he's not proud of that. That it was really he. I mean, he claims that you know he he was trying to do what was asked of him and not lose his job, but. I don't think he was that thrilled. I think he was kind of um, really morally troubled, to be honest, with having to be this crippler at the behest of Eddie Graham, you know, but he still did it. <laughs> Definitely. Um, one of the things I found interesting in reading the Sheik book was, and I thought this as I'm reading it, and, you know, we're, you know you're getting through his career and, you know, him becoming the Sheik and him buying Detroit and all this stuff. And I, as I'm reading it, I'm like, but when's he go to, when's he go to Japan? And he goes to Japan a lot later than I expected in like his long career. Yeah. It was later than I expected too. When I was doing the research, I think a lot of people just have this assumption that he was going over there at the same time that like that first wave that you had people like Blassie and the destroyer and Luthez going over there, but he wasn't, it, it was happening later. Excuse me. In fact, really his heyday of wrestling in Japan was the seventies. Um, I don't think he started regularly going until I want to say 73. I think maybe the first time he went was 71, and by 81, he was done because he at least, you know, until much later on when he went back for Onita. But he um, he was blacklisted by the NWA in 1982. And, of course, Giant Baba was an NWA member. 
And so that was the end of that. That was the end of his All Japan tours. And he wasn't going to go to New Japan because he had major heat and problems with Inoki. So uh, it's really sort of like early 70s till the very beginning of the 80s. That's his Japan era. And it's funny because we do seemingly have a lot of, you know, since, you know, all Japan footage, even from the 70s, is sort of a lot more plentiful probably than people might expect. Yes. But we have lots and lots of stuff, you know, with him versus the Funks, and certainly him teaming with and then and then feuding with Abby. And I know that that Crispy Lettuce is a big fan of this because, you know, you get the rare thing of Babyface Abby. But those those matches are just so interesting. And they're taking place in Japan where, like, we talk about them being scary, where, like, they... You know, they're scaring everybody. You know, the classic thing of them running through the crowds that we see later with, you know, Hanson and Brody. But, like, these two are, are even crazier about what they're doing in the crowds. And I think that what worked for them is they stood out so completely. Because, you know, as we know, with Japanese wrestling and just even the culture around it, it's very conservative. You know, especially back then, you're talking 50 years ago. Japanese fans were known for being quiet and respectful, and they would kind of politely applaud if there was a good move or something. And just uh, the, even the style of wrestling w was much more kind of sports-like. And so when you have these guys who, you know, I don't even – they would have matches where they wouldn't even go in the ring. It would just be – like you wouldn't even know if the match started or not. Like they were just climbing over chairs you know, throwing tables on top of each other. And this is in like, this is like 50 years ago, you know, 45, 50 years ago. So um, they made a mark in Japan that never went away. I mean, it was almost like, like I said in the book, it was like he came from another planet, you know? The interesting one, I was watching some of this stuff today, and I'm sure I've seen it before, but I was watching the match that's on YouTube between the Sheik and Ricky Steamboat. Oh, yeah. Which is like maybe like a 10-minute match. Mm -hmm. And there's like, I think most of it's not, most of it's outside the ring. Steamboat barely does anything but chop, because that seems to be all he's getting in in between, you know, being brutalized. It's like he does lots <laughs> of sort of like overhand Baba-style chops, you know, and I think like, like he may end with like him putting the Sheik in a sleeper or something, but but it's mostly... You know, the act of them brawling around ringside and, you know, using some sort of foreign object on them. And and I don't remember if Steamboat juiced or not, but it was like, it was, again, you know, you're not going to be seeing, you know, epic, you know, 30-minute classics with the Sheik, especially in this time period. It's like, you know, 10 minutes of action and that's what you're going to get. But I'll tell you what, the, the, the match with Steamboat in Japan is a good match. Um, I think that, um, especially for that time of his career, and I'm thinking he had to, he must have respected Steamboat because I know it may not look like a lot, but he, but the Sheik bumps in that match, and you never saw the Sheik bump for anybody. You know, even just the simple thing of, I can't remember if Steamboat maybe comes off the top with a cross body or he hits him with a drop kick. And the Sheik takes like a back bump 
and you're like, okay, so what? But, I mean, I'm telling you, he never did that. I mean, he never left his feet. He never bumped. He never he never did that stuff for anybody at that point. And the fact that he did it for Steamboat, it was almost like, I don't know, to me, a show of respect for this young kid who was like, a you know, already kind of like a marvel in the ring. You had to give him something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of, of interesting sort of interesting stuff from that from that time period that's on on YouTube. Like I said, a lot of stuff with Abby. I think there's also some stuff with Tiger Jeet Singh, who also sort of fits in that same niche of like the crazy foreigner, you know, it's like one's got a fork, one's got a pencil, one's got a sword. And and great Mephisto, he's another one on some one of the, some of those Japanese tours. They had the Sheik paired up with Great Mephisto which is fascinating because Great Mephisto was like one of the most blatant chic knockoffs, you know, that there ever was. And they have them teamed up over there. The uh, one of the, yeah, and speaking of of that, that reminds me is learning some of the things. I guess when you consider that all the things that he sort of pioneered that you don't really think about. And I think it's he's generally Attributed to the first person to throw fire, right? That was something he came up with. Yes, yes. But the thing that I had to ask you about, because it, I read it in the book and I stopped and I didn't think about it, but he's probably the first guy with a Middle Eastern gimmick that wore what I've always called uh, genie boots or elf boots or sheik boots. He was like the first person to wear the boot with the curly cue on them. Well, you know, there were other wrestling sheiks before him. Right. Uh, there were a couple. There was Sheik Marala, who probably was the first one. He goes back to the 30s. There was Sheik Emir Badui, who I think was an uncle or a relative of some kind of Jimmy Weba. And also um, oh, there was another wrestler who used an Arabic gimmick who claimed to have been related to him. But – um, and I think Ed Farhart was exposed to him. I think they worked the Lansing scene together. But I don't know if any of those earlier guys wore those kind of like Alibaba boots, you know. <laughs> uh, he may – Sheik may have been the first one. Eddie Farhart may have been the first one to do it. It's very possible and likely because actually even um, some of the early ones like Marala, who was half Arabic and half uh, Mexican, I think – he would they wouldn't commit as fully as Sheik, where where they Sheik just became this over the top character. Like you would see them dressed in sometimes they would appear in dressed as a normal wrestler, not really playing up the gimmick so hard, and then sometimes they would really play into it. Uh, you know, sometimes they wouldn't have their head covered. It wasn't nearly the kind of all in commitment that Farhat did. Yeah, it's funny when you watch sort of various time periods clips of him where you said like in the 50s you know it's like he may only have the headdress on and you know and he may have a robe and then you see he eventually gets uh princess salima who was his real life wife correct yes joyce um uh spraying like the perfume incense uh thing and the then he adds the prayer rug so he can pray to Mecca, which again is funny because he wasn't Muslim; he was Christian. So right, right. Um, and the I don't know. Did he eventually have like a 
Did you ever have like a larger entourage than that, or was it pretty much always just like the valet? He had um, he had Princess Salima, and I think there may have been times where Joyce wasn't on the road with him, and they may have used other people, but it was mainly Joyce, his wife. You know, he dabbled a little bit here and there with having these kind of male valets in that era now and then. But and then later on, of course, in the uh, I want to say 60s, when he's at his peak in Detroit, he gets Abdullah Farouk as his manager. And part of that is, too, because now they were having kids and Joyce didn't want to be on the road as much. And she, you know, now that they had their own business, Joyce was handling a lot of the business side of it. So they kind of retired the princess thing. And then he got like a real manager, not a real manager, but, you know, a more conventional manager, Ernie Roth, who had been Ernie Roth had done a lot of things in wrestling. He had been he had dabbled a little bit in being a wrestler, believe it or not, although I don't think he really ever fully took it seriously. He was an announcer. Originally, he had worked on the because he's from Canton, Ohio, and the Sheik had TV in Canton. And so he would do some like local announcing and that's sort of how she discovered him. And that's when he really becomes a full-time manager. Thanks to the Sheik and the Sheik made him a Abdullah Farouk. And then when Farouk went to the WWF at the beginning of the seventies and became the grand wizard, uh, that's when the Sheik found who for my money is the most underrated by far wrestling manager of all time, Eddie, the brain Creechman. The Sheik brought him from Montreal and made him his new full-time manager because Sheik had worked with Creechman in Montreal whenever he would wrestle there. And the heat he had was just off the charts, like almost borderline riot type of heat. And um, so the Sheik saw dollar signs and he brought him down to Detroit. And But the thing about Creechman was he would not go on the road the way that Farouk did. So in some of the more, like, I think he would go to New York with him, but in some of the more far-flung territories, uh, Creechman wouldn't go because <clears throat> he had local businesses in Quebec and things, and he didn't want to go too far. So, like, for example, if um, when the, whenever the Sheik went to Texas, he would be managed by Gary Hart often. Or if he went to um, Florida, he'd be managed by Lord Alfred Hayes. And so they would do that kind of thing. Um, you know, kind of like the local manager, because he needed to have somebody. That's interesting you say that, because one of the things that I saw today was a match, I think from the late 70s, where the Sheik's wrestling Fritz in Texas, and Gary Hart's his manager. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. You don't really don't often see Gary Hart with the Sheik. I mean, it's funny, because there's lots of people in their periphery that we, that intersect, you know, like with Mark Lewin and people like that. But, like, I never really think of Gary Hart being with the Sheik. Yeah, well, that was only when he was down there. Because, like I said, Creechman wouldn't travel, and they felt like, well, he needs to have some kind of mouthpiece. He needs to have somebody to play off of. So they would get, because, you know, they would give him Gary Hart, because Gary, that was like his home base down there. And actually, when Sheik was in Dallas... In that, if it's what I'm thinking of, in that time frame there in the late 70s, that's also where he discovered Gino Hernandez because he brought Gino Hernandez after that to Detroit. And Gino Hernandez was like a rookie. 
and he made him the United States heavyweight champion, which was like the top belt in the Detroit territory. And it's interesting because it's like one of these rare times where it almost feels like the Sheik is starting to try to make a new young star for his territory. And then, of course, it doesn't happen, and, and Gino goes back to Texas. But that's one of the things that killed the territory is it was just the same old guys over and over and over and over again. And there was no new blood, and there was no, like, hope of the Sheik being defeated or any of that stuff. And the people just gave up on it. Well, I know uh, one of the clips I was watching were, like, the announcers talking about, like, how many years it's been, you know, the Sheik has been U.S. champion. And you're just like, you know, it'd be one thing, you know, if he, if it was world champion, you understand having, like, a multi-year reign. But, you know, you don't necessarily usually think of, like, a territorial belt, you know, being held for so long, especially when it's by a heel. Right. You know, I mean, guess other than, I guess it would depend on, like, how many times he and Bopo probably switched it back and forth over the years, which I imagine what most of the title changes probably were. Yeah, and I've talked about how the Sheik was kind of like the anti-Bruno. That's how I describe him. Like, he he booked himself in very much the way that Vince Sr. booked Bruno in New York. And I think that was partly intentional. I think he was seeing what they were doing in New York. But, of course, the big problem there is Bruno is the baby face that everybody wants to win. So when he keeps winning, <laughs> everybody's happy. But when you're the heel and they just want to see you lose and you never lose, that's a big problem. And so, you know, that's why he'd have the belt that long. Um, be, well, because, look, he owned the territory and he wanted to keep his heat. And the U.S. title was the top prize there. So even though they they called it the U.S. title, right, because it was he was part of the N.W.A. So you had to be careful what you named these titles. But for all intents and purposes, um. In, in Michigan, in Ontario, in Ohio, you know, it was it, – you basically could have just called it a world title. I mean, you know, that's the way it was treated, the same way that Bruno was the world champion, but really mainly in places like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, New England. You know, I mean, it was it was really kind of a semantic thing. I mean, the fact that it was the U.S. title, it was like the supreme prize because the NWA world champion, even though they recognized – him he may have only come to town like once a year if that that something you said uh that i didn't want to think about when we talk about bruno being like this big ethnic hero in the wwf then um did the sheik have any kind even though he's a heel and obviously a monster heel and literally and figuratively what was did uh did the um, Arab fans there, did they did they adopt, like, what was the relation? I guess, what was the relationship between sort of the Arabic fans and the Sheik? Like, did they root for him because he's one of our own, or did they boo him because he's this horrible heel that uses a pencil and throws fire? It's an interesting thing because um, that area did have a very large... Um, Syrian population, Lebanese population. Um, it was not, however, a lot of them were Christian. They were not Muslim. So, uh, you know, and in other places that he wrestled, you know, I'm not really sure because you got to remember too, um, 
America was a lot more homogeneous back then. So, I mean, you didn't – there wasn't a huge awareness even of Muslim culture, and I think that's one of the reasons why Farhat was able to get away with what he got away with. You know, there, there um, in all the research I did, there never was any kind of a protest or an uproar or any kind of that kind of thing of the character, and I think for a lot of white Christian Americans or Judeo-Christian Americans, they didn't really have a big awareness of Muslim culture, so it was very easy to just consider this guy to be this weird, crazy foreigner, you know? But I've never found instances of people cheering for him on an ethnic basis. Although one thing that's interesting, and it's one of the only times I came across anybody having a problem with the gimmick, it was actually Bruno. And, you know, Bruno, who, as we all know, was a very stand-up, honorable, decent guy and very empathetic guy. And so – and he was also very much in tune with the immigrant struggle, you know, given his own background and immigrant identities and things. And he was very used to being somebody who was inspirational in an ethnic way, like inspiring – not just Italians, but many ethnic groups. And he apparently at one point, first of all, he didn't like working with the Sheik at all. He didn't like working for him or with him or anything. I think he found him to be kind of distasteful. I think that was part of it. I think he took issue with the idea that, you know, what are these hardworking, you know, Arabic fans or Muslim fans, what will they think of seeing a guy like this who's making a mockery of their background and making himself into a monster, you know, by using their identity, you know, and I think he actually had a problem with that. I think he was uncomfortable with it, thinking that it would be an insult to Arab fans. Um, and, you know, it was one of several reasons why he didn't really like working with the Sheik. When you say that, that's something else that just, that I just made me think about is the Sheik is, an unintelligible sort of monster force of nature. So while he's a heel and he's an Arab, he's not a political Arab yes, heel. Exactly. So, which so I'd be sort of interested, like if you look at stuff from the mid seventies on, when we get to the gas crisis and we get to the hostages and things like that, that you know. I assume, I mean, I don't, I can't recall ever like hearing about him, like tapping into that the way, like the way that the Iron Sheik would later, or Adnan Casey would, in the AWA, or like you know we mentioned Akbar, you know, he's uh, like the Sheik is not going on television, even though you know he famously wore suits, although not in character, or at least in the ring. Sometimes he would wear them in character on, but, on promos and things. But it's not like the Sheik is going on Detroit TV, you know, talking about OPEC no. and things, Although, like, things like that. Right. And the Sheik, however, part of his character was that he was an oil baron. He was supposed to be – if you really get into the weeds of it, the idea was he came from this wealthy oil family in Syria – this was the gimmick. He was this wild, out of control, you know, guy that his family had sent to the United States to become a wrestler to get this this out this violence out of his system. 
but that he was connected to this wealthy oil family. And that was also another reason of how they would explain how he was always so well-dressed and he had all this jewelry and everything. So everyone knew that the Sheik had a lot of money. That was part of the character. Um, but he was still this wild man. It was this weird kind of combination. But you're right in that they never – he never played into um, what would happen later, the political – side of it like with the iron sheik being the greatest example of that um that was a a different kind of arab heel and i talk about it in the book which is once you get into the era of you know where there's a heightened awareness of terrorism and you start getting islamic fundamentalist states in the middle east that are very very anti-american in their sentiment then you get promoters that are trying to play into that like the sheik the iron sheik famously played up the Iran hostage crisis, which was like nuclear heat, you know, in the years after that. And uh, but that was a different kind of heel. Uh, at the time that the Sheik was the Sheik, Eddie Farhad, there was a very different connotation to Arabic and Muslim culture in the United States. And I talk about this in the book. It was more this idea of exoticism. It wasn't what we now think of as Islamophobia or as like, oh, my God, this guy's a terrorist. Oh, my God, he wants to destroy the United States. It was more like um, coming out of World War One. OK, you had a, a strong awareness of Arabic oil interests. That's when it started to really come on to the American radar. And um, there was a romanticizing of it. It's kind of an alien concept today. But if you think of something like Rudolph Valentino's The Sheik, the movie and the book, which were a rage in the 1920s, there was this idea of this concept of the um, exotic kind of otherworldly Arabic sheik, almost like a like a like Dracula or something like he was going to come here and he was going to bewitch the women and just. He, he he had this kind of machismo about him. He was from this this strange but kind of alluring culture. There was a lot of that, a lot of that kind of like, you know, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, you know, the 1001 Arabian Nights. Like there was this mysticism around it. And uh, even the song, The Sheik of Araby, which was where the sheik got his name from, which is a song from the 20s, is all about that. It's about a sheik who kind of um, – abducts this this woman who I we assume is like a Western woman and she falls in love with him in spite of herself because he's just so charming, you know, this kind of thing. And all that sort of stuff was rolled into the original Sheik of Araby character. He was meant to be a threat to, you know, Judeo-Christian American values, but in a very different way than the than the Sheiks who came later, like like, you know, Iron Sheik. The thing that it also reminds me of, it reminds me of like Yellow Peril stuff in the 30s with Fu Manchu. Yeah, yeah, you know what? There is a, it's that type of thing, yes. It's that is exoticism. Because like if you actually read the, um, like the novels and stuff, like a lot of the whole thing is about, you know, these British guys trying to like keep out this like, encroachment of eastern mysticism and all this other kind of stuff because you know we're talking about the 30s so it's not communist china yet it's that otherworldly 
kind of thing. The other thing that I was thinking about when you were talking about that is that the she that the original she gimmick, the way you describe it, is almost like this may not be like the right words, but he's like like Arab old money. Yes. Like like the era of the Shah. Yes. You know what I mean? Like he would be because again, like post World War Two is when you start getting a lot, especially American interests going over to Egypt and Iran and Iraq and places like that, where that you know where you start, you know the petroleum industrial complex starts being really built. You know that yeah that that would make sense that he would sort of tap that people would be familiar with. Yes. You know that the influx of money from the Middle East, because I know, I mean, I went to college in the late '80s, and you know, it's not quite the same. But like, I lived in an international building. Like that was the gimmick that it was for inter, it was for international students and people who were sort of interested in international studies and culture and stuff like that. And on my floor. There was like 30 guys, and I think like maybe almost like a third were from like either Malaysia or Indonesia. Like they were all very wealthy, and like they were all going to business school, you know, because Indiana has like a famous business school. So these were all sort of that like second generation. Um, we're sending our children to the United States to get educated in business or whatever, you know, because they were like one of the, like, I think when I was a freshman, they were like three people on our floor that had a computer, <laughs> you know, and like they were two of them, you know, and so, and but like, and you know, they were all, a lot of, you know, most of them were, were cool guys and everything, but it was just, it was like sort of like this pocket of like all these guys, you know, it, Similar to that, that you know, it's still the '80s, so you, you get a little bit. But they're also that's Southeast Asian, not the Middle East. But that's one of the funny things is um, my friend, uh, my friend Ash, who used to work um, for the AP in Cairo, and now is back in DC. Um, you know, we used to love watching wrestling then because um, we would watch like. Adnan doing all these promos for the AWA and he's like you know he's really speaking Arabic like he's not doing uh, the sheik gibberish like he's right. like he's actually speaking Arab he's mainly saying like he's saying Muslim prayers but you know but he's saying you know I'm you know we're going to win this belt and take the back to Saddam Hussein or whatever he's like no he's speaking he's really speaking Arabic you know I mean because obviously the Adnan's from Baghdad Yes, and went to high school with Saddam Hussein. That's a shoot. They right. Were, they, they were friends and colleagues and all that kind of stuff. And uh, same thing with Vaziri, you know, who was the bodyguard of the Shah. That's a shoot. Really came from there, who spoke Farsi on his interviews. Um, yeah, there was more of an authenticity. And I think what happened in later years because of that, in his older age at the time, which started to add to his irrelevancy – in the business is it started to make Farhat look like a cartoon. Whereas he used to be this fearsome character. He almost became a parody by that point. 
And, you know, because, look, he was an American guy. He was born and raised in the U.S. He was a veteran. Um, really, I think he knew a little bit, but, I mean, he mainly just spoke English. Um, you know, he was Catholic. <laughs> so uh, there there was less authenticity for whatever that matters in, in the world of wrestling. But, yeah, even to go back to the, the whole thing with that the, the exoticism, too, is um, what, when the – the Ottoman Empire fell, okay, at the end of World War One. That really was the opening of the floodgates as far as um, the Middle East or the, the Arab regions kind of walking onto the world stage and 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 really getting more kind of self-determination and there became and, and having control of the oil and things like that. It was the beginning of what we think of today as the modern Arab world. And that's why Americans were much more aware of that. It almost was like a, a fascination at the time uh, with that culture, just like we've gone through eras where there'll be a fascination with Japanese culture, the fascination with Egyptian culture. You know, there was a fascination with Arabic culture. And uh, even though this is this is going on around the time that Eddie Farhat was born, right, it was still in the living memory of a lot of people in America in the 40s and 50s. So you were able to kind of play on it. So it was almost like a like a weird sentimental cultural throwback that you could play on this archetype that a lot of people still remembered even from back in the 20s and 30s. And one of, we talked about sort of how with the Sheikh of Araby and that sort of being this influence. Another thing that you mentioned in the book, and we were talking about this today online, is how much he was influenced as a kid by Alexander Corda and Michael Pell's film of the thief of Baghdad. Yes. Which, which for people that haven't seen it is an amazing movie for being made in 1940 with the amount, the, the special effects in that. And it's in color. It's in 1940, but it's in technicolor. And it is like a lot of sort of your, you know, your thousand one primers. There's a genie and a flying carpets and, things like that but like what an influence that was on him and of course one of the stars of that movie is Sabu who you know the Sheik would later gift that name to his nephew right he tried to give the name to um for, well he had a dog named Sabu I mean he was obsessed with this he had a dog named Sabu earlier in life and he wanted to name one of his sons Sabu, like for real, like he wanted to. And um, Joyce objected and they settled on Thomas. But he was um, he was fascinated with that movie. Yeah. And uh, he was a, a, a kid when it came out, like about 14 years old. And it was known like he would talk to people about it, how it was this movie that fascinated him as a kid. And I know like one of the things is um you could see certain things that influenced his his thought process back then. Like there was another wrestler in the 30s uh, when when Eddie was a boy named Ali Baba, and Ali Baba was an Armenian, and I forget his real name. I I, I wish I had it in front of me, but he wrestled as Ali Baba, and he was one of the first what we would really call gimmick wrestlers to become a world champion and he had a shaved head. He, his gimmick visually looked a lot like the iron Sheik. Um, he had a shaved head. 
he had this handlebar twisty mustache, you know, and he would and, and he had this great physique and this exotic look. The big difference was he wrestled as a baby face. He wrestled to appeal to the Middle Eastern um, fans, specifically in that part of the country back then. And he was world champion. And I have evidence. I didn't put it in the book because at the time I couldn't confirm it. So I kind of speculated about it in the book. But I, I have been able to learn that Eddie and his family did go to the matches at Olympia Stadium in that era. And so Eddie would have seen Alibaba. And I think that had a big influence on him. In fact, years later in Kobo, he had a preliminary wrestler that he named um, the son of Alibaba. That was his name. So obviously this character had an effect on him. And I think also that movie, The Thief of Baghdad, because you have this kid in there, Sabu, who I believe was Indian, um, who you're talking about in 1940. He's this young boy with dark skin and kind of an Eastern you know, uh, 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 pedigree. And he's up there on the movie screen where we're 99% of everybody else is white, you know, and that had to have had a big influence. You can understand why a movie like that would have a big influence on a kid like this in middle America in the 1940s, you know, and, and all these things I believe really influenced his thinking later on when he was trying to present himself in the, wrestling world yeah it's it's always interesting when you can learn like what pop culture artifacts like influence like a guy's gimmick or his persona or whatever you know like something they see as like a kid sticks in their back of their mind and then like 20 years later when they're creating this character or you know however you want to say it it's like all, you know, like, were people that, like, saw gangster movies, you know, from around that time that, you know, had this, like, profound influence on them, or what, or science fiction movies, or whatever. That, yeah, it's definitely, it's always interesting to see, like, where the germs for things come from. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, what that's like with any of us, you know, you the stuff you see sometimes as a kid just sticks with you for always. But, yeah, I think that... Um, that kind of stuff made a big impact on him. I mean, that's why, like you said, he named he gave his nephew that name as a wrestler. And actually, originally, Sabu was called Sabu the Elephant Boy. And the Elephant Boy is another movie from that era that that influenced Eddie and that he saw. And, 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 and it influenced a lot of people, too, because there was a wrestler called the Elephant Boy. I, I mean, you know, it's it's easy to forget because, you know. We live in a time where we're all influenced by the popular culture, things that we absorbed as children. It's easy to forget uh, that so many of these things from bygone eras, it was the same thing except from an earlier era. So like I was saying, you had audiences in the 40s, 50s, 60s who remembered things like the Thief of Baghdad, who even remembered Rudolph Valentino as the Sheik and who remembered the song and things like that. And those characters would play on uh, on on those memories that people had. Definitely. So we've definitely established that the Sheik is like on our number one scary list, and we've talked about Abdullah. So, who are some other people that you think you would sort of put in your top five, top ten list 
either in ring, the way just their persona, the way they acted. Who are who are some people that you think would also fit the bill here? You know, it depends. I think when you're a kid, too, it, it, things make a bigger impact on you, you know, so you have to think of it from that point of view. I think Brody was very scary because of how he, you know, presented himself in this way of being completely uncontrollable and wild and crazy and unpredictable. You know, there was an element of that. Uh, later on, Cactus Jack, I thought, did a great job. And, you know, I... <laughs> I worked um, for the WWE at a time when we had the boogeyman (laughs) and I thought that he did a great job of playing this character who was, you know, straight out of a horror movie. I mean, he couldn't really work a lot once the bell rang, but, but as a character, uh, I thought he was really effective. You know, he had, he had these earthworms, if you remember, and he really did eat them. I saw him do it. Uh, you know, he, he was almost like, um, I don't know what they were going for, like something out of uh, today. I don't even know if they were out back then, but almost like something out of the Insidious movies or something like that. But it, I thought that was really effective. Also, there was a there was a German themed wrestler from years gone by named Killer Carl, Carl Krupp, who I always thought when I would see him in magazines and old videos and things was terrifying to me, M- maybe the most frightening of all the kind of German or Nazi inspired heels. Uh, I didn't discover him until much later, but he's another one that I I would put on that list too, uh, as a good example. Yeah. See my list, I guess maybe also a little skewed because I did not watch wrestling as a kid. Like I start, I did not start watching until I was a teenager. So I always say that like, I don't have this like weird childhood fascination or, like so with certain characters the way people latch onto them as like little kids I didn't have that so I, I like I always sort of appreciated people especially once I started watching sort of more for like the presentation and the I, I hate using all these words but it's sort of like how we talk about stuff now but like the gimmick and the presentation and things like that and somebody that I put on my list um and hindsight is not sort of the most intimidating person physically because he really did not have like a great body per se but like right when I started watching world class was like sort of at the peak time for Kabuki and oh, that's I think, a good one and Kabuki I think is a great thing when um, again you have you know Gary Hart was sort of like the master of this too of creating the backstory where, you know, he's from Singapore, he's from the melting pots of sin. Like, the reason he wears the face paint is because he was punished and he had his face put in a bucket of hot coals. And so he wears the paint to hide his the scars on his face. And, you know, and you got the mist and the three kinds of mist and, you know, the green mist and the like the poison and the red mist is death and then the black the black mist is like you know death or it's like giving somebody a powder driver in Memphis or in Mexico <laughs> you know like but you know I love sort of that whole as time went on and I learned sort of more of the history like I love all sort of like these weird oddball guys that Gary Hart would collect from place to place 
you know, like I first saw him in Texas, so he's got Kabuki, he's got Mark Lewin, and, you know, I didn't know Mark Lewin was like this former all-American clean-cut guy. I just know he was strange, and then I started getting magazines, and I find out about all this other weird stuff in Florida with Kevin Sullivan that I hadn't seen before. And, you know, Sullivan's another guy to put on this list. And, oh, yeah. And, yeah, he, he was like the Charles Manson of wrestling, you know? Well, see, he reminds me a lot of the Sheik. You know, so it's interesting to, like, the number of times that, like, he intersected with them because, especially when you sort of get to late era Sullivan, where he's got the entourage and he never really sells and he doesn't leave his feed and he's using foreign objects and he's throwing fire. That, you know, like, you can see a lot, you know, like, it's slightly different because you've got the whole sort of Prince of Darkness stuff. But it seems like a lot of, like, that, like, 84 forward Sullivan is very, very chic-like, carrying snakes, and you've got, the, you know, mentally, you know, the girls are a lot more scantily clad than the chic had. But, you know, you can definitely, so it's sort of interesting when, you know, they sort of bring the chic, I don't know, can you, out of quasi-retirement, when they booked him in that show in Kobo, when he, like, teams with Sullivan against I think Dusty and Murdoch, and they popped this huge house because people hadn't seen the Sheik for so long. Yeah, and that actually was Sullivan's idea. So Kevin was a big fan of the Sheiks and became great friends with the Sheik, really looked up to him, and you know he saw him as being the greatest heel of all time, still does. He patterned a lot of what he did on him. And so when this would have been in the summer of 88, when they were doing the Great American Bash Tour, in the, in the final dying months of Crockett promotions, um, Kevin, who was booking for Crockett with Dusty, you know, he found out that they were bringing it to Kobo in Detroit. And he said, we have got to get the Sheik for this. Even though the Sheik has been off the radar for a while, by that point, um, you know, he hadn't wrestled in Kobo Arena in eight years. And he had been in semi-retirement for about five or six years. Uh, and Crockett was against the idea and he was just, you know, and Dusty wasn't really totally sold on it. And even though Sheik had given Dusty one of his earliest breaks too, because the Texas outlaws really got their start in Detroit among other places. And then Dusty came back and worked with the Sheik in the seventies. But um, Kevin said something like, you know, if we, if we draw less than such and such a number, or if we make less than such and such a gate, you know, I'll bet you, this amount of money or whatever and they had a bet kevin wound up winning the bet but they brought the sheik in and the match was supposed to be it was booked as dusty and the sheik who was i guess tentatively supposed to be a baby face against kevin sullivan and dick murdoch and they did a double switch where the sheik goes bananas you know he goes after dusty his own partner and then Murdoch turns because Murdoch's trying to save his old partner Dusty from the Sheik, and 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 the match just descends into chaos. And it was supposed to build to a rematch where they were going to come back to Kobo and do um, the reverse tag team, where it would have been the reunited Murdoch and Dusty Rhodes against Kevin Sullivan and the Sheik. That's where it was supposed to be going, but the Sheik stiffed them on money. He pulled his usual shenanigans. He demanded 10% of the gate. 
which in 1988 was ludicrous, but it's what he always got. And so they never did the rematch, and they wound up subbing Larry Zbysko in place of the Sheik when they came back to Kobo later that year, which really, I mean, it made no sense. It just made it just another tag team match. You know, it was just it was Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch against Kevin Sullivan and Larry Zbysko. So, I mean, they, they left money on the table there. But it was that was the Sheik's last gasp, really, on the national stage in the United States for a major company, even though it wasn't a televised show. Uh, from that point on, really, the only kind of uh, notoriety that he had was in Japan. One thing that um, will segue into some other stuff after this, but the one thing that we hadn't talked about yet that I find interesting is the war between the Sheik and Dick the Bruiser, which... I think if you sort of look at all the wrestling wars from that time may have been, I don't know. I don't know if I would say the biggest, but certainly maybe the most interesting because probably because of the two people involved, you know, that like it's, it seems like it was sort of like a lot more heated and maybe lasted longer than say the Georgia war. Yeah, that it, it was that was the thing. It was one of, uh, if not the longest, wrestling war of of the of those territory days. And one reason for that was um, that Bruiser just wouldn't give up. Uh, if you look at it, it went on from about seventy one to seventy three, and almost. So okay, the background was that the territory that they had, the territory used to be Michigan, Ohio, Southern Ontario in the north, and then down to uh, Indiana and in the, in the, in the southern part of the territory. Um, and it had all been run by Jim Barnett and Johnny Doyle. And when Barnett and Doyle left in the early 60s to go to Australia to start their territory out there, um, they sold part of the territory to the Sheik. They sold the Detroit-based half. The Indiana part of it had been taken by force by Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder. They basically just pushed Barnett and Doyle out and just took it. And Dick the Bruiser had this idea, he always had this idea from the beginning, back in the 60s, that he was going to take the whole thing. He was going to go up north, he was going to go into Detroit, he was going to take that part of it, and he was going to unite the whole territory the way it had been. And in fact, there was a minor invasion in the mid-60s that didn't work out, and he left. And then he tried again in the early 70s, and what really emboldened him was all right, you had two arenas in Detroit. You had Cobo Arena, which the Sheik ran, and you had the older one, which is Olympia Stadium, which was the one that went way back. And it wasn't really being used for wrestling anymore. But the promoter who ran Olympia was a guy named Lincoln Cavalieri, who was a really great promoter. He had brought the Beatles to Detroit. He'd done a lot. He wanted in on wrestling. So he became the money guy. And it was like this endless source of money. And it enabled the bruiser to, to stay competitive. And he starts coming in. He starts running Olympia Stadium. And they would run head-to-head -head against Kobo. You would have one show in Kobo. One show in Olympia on the same night, opposite ends of Detroit. You know, it was a real war. But the thing about it is the Sheik, the, the outcome of it was almost never in doubt. Because almost every time they ran head-to-head, -head, the Sheik's outfit won, outdrew the Bruiser. 
I think they ran head to head something like 20 or 30 times. And there were only a handful of times, like you could count on one hand, that Bruiser actually outdrew the Sheik. So, you know, it was the kind of a situation where a lot of people would have left a lot sooner. But Bruiser just would not give up. He kept coming back. He kept trying. And what it finally took was the Sheik trying to get television in um, Bruiser's territories, which back then was such a big no-no. He was buying up TV time slots in some of the other areas that Bruiser promoted in. And the problem with that was Bruiser in some of those areas, like in Illinois, he co-promoted with Vern Gagne, which was the AWA. And they didn't want any part of that mess. So, you know, once the Sheik started putting TV in some of those areas, uh, Vern Gagne basically said to Dick the Bruiser, you got to straighten this situation out. Uh, you know, he can't do that. And what Eddie Farhad had said to Bruiser was, you know, I'll pull my TV if you stop running in my territory. And that's what finally ended the war. And then they started doing business together, you know, in the same way that, um, you know, Jerry Lawler's group in Memphis started doing business with the Pafos uh, after they had their promotional war, because all the fans in Detroit they knew about this war. It was common knowledge that you had these two companies running against each other. So once the war was over, then they started doing all the Sheik versus Bruiser stuff. But it took years to get to that point. And honestly, that's when the territory started to go on the downturn. Once the war was over, um, that is actually when interest started to dwindle. And... Um... One of the one of the things I was I saw earlier today that made me want to talk about this was there's a match on YouTube that's just clips, but it's from '74. It's Sheik and Heenan as a tag team versus Bobo and Dick the Bruiser from Chicago, Comiskey Park. Right, and, you know it's only like ten minutes long, but it's very it's it's I saw that and I was like. Wait, Sheik and Bruiser are, gonna ta- like, are wrestling each other in tag. I had to look to see what year it was. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then you add Heenan into that, which makes it even more interesting. And, and then it's funny because I think Creechman is there, too, mm-hmm. as as Sheik's manager. So you've got a weird conglomeration of, of pieces being put together. But I saw that, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and um, the my favorite moment of that <laughs> match is... This was at one of the, you know, the AWA was running Comiskey Park a few times in this era, just like Fred Kohler had done back in the 60s. And um, there's a point where they come back to the locker room. And in those days, you didn't see that all the time where the cameras would follow the wrestlers to the back. You know, it was rare. So when it happened, it was really cool. And you can see. Um, All right. Bobby Heenan is bleeding, as always. The Sheik is bleeding. And the Sheik comes over and he starts licking the blood off of Bobby's head. And you can see that Bobby, he breaks character. I mean, he's legitimately disgusted by this. Like, he's not in character, you know, because if he was, he wouldn't be acting disgusted. He is absolutely disgusted that the Sheik is licking the blood off of his face. And it, it just really stuck with me. Definitely. And 
You know, and obviously, like you said, Heenan was notorious, you know, because there's that famous cover of, like, ah, yes. when Heenan literally does have a crimson mask of blood. Like, his entire face is bloody, and it's it's really creepy. But it's like, I, that's probably, like, one of the most famous wrestling covers I'd imagine. Yeah, it's, it's, my God, Bobby, what happened to your face? That's the cover line. Yeah, and that was like, you know, because I was a kid reading... WWF magazine in the late 80s, which was the most sanitized product you could imagine, you know, and every now and then I whether it be, I don't know, at a flea market or if you knew a kid who had some old magazines and you were talking wrestling, you know, I would see that cover and covers like that. There's another one from that era of superstar Billy Graham, where like the blood's all over his face. He's got his mouth open and the flash on the camera is so bright like you could see down his throat, you could see like the blood, his own blood, like some of it's in his mouth. I mean, it's horrifying. And um, that would be like the antithesis of, to me, of what the kind of wrestling I was actually watching on TV. And and even, even at that age, and this is what got me interested in wrestling history, I would just be like, wow, I want to know more about that stuff. That is way cooler than the stuff that I'm watching right now. Yeah, because I started buying, like, the After Magazines and some of the other ones, like, 85, 86. And so I think, generally speaking, things had been toned down, although you would get the occasional bloody cover, but rare. It wasn't until I started buying back issues, you know, like, not only did, like, did I discover apartment wrestling in wrestling magazines, but then, like, just that how like 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 gore sold because like i don't remember those as a kid because i never i never bought them but it's just funny that like the the more lurid the better as if it was sort of like pulp novels in the 1950s the way like what they thought attracted an audience and i'm guessing it probably did because they they would know the sales figures yeah, I mean, uh, it did. It did. In that era, it absolutely did, and that's why they did it. You know, it's like I've talked to some people who worked in wrestling magazines in that era, and it was as simple as that. I mean, you, you wanted the lurid kind of stuff. There were certain stars that would sell, like Bruno would sell, and you didn't need blood. The Sheik would sell, but a big reason why would be the blood. And the people that, you know, would get bloody would be the people that would very often appear on covers – and that doesn't stop until you get really to the mid-80s. And part of it is the PWI era because Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which comes out in 79, was uh, – the genesis of that was the London publishing, Stanley Weston, who put out Inside Wrestling and The Wrestler and other magazines in the 60s and 70s. They got this new deal with a second distributor, a separate magazine distributor that wanted them to do a different tone, a different type of wrestling magazine. And so they started doing it, trying to make it a little more serious. They started throwing out some of the more outrageous storylines and the apartment wrestling went away and they were doing it more almost like a straight up, like a sports magazine in some ways, although there still was some outrageousness in it. But the wrestling magazines really started to change you know, in, in the 70s, look, was this time of just it was like the Wild West. You can get away with anything. And there started to be a lot more 
clamping down on what you could and couldn't put in those magazines in the 80s. And I think some of that, too, was the, the WWF influence because the WWF was really positioning wrestling as something more wholesome, and which is hilarious, something more kind of family oriented. And so all of the wrestling magazines started following suit. It was they were going for a different audience. They were going for a different kind of tone. I mean, wrestling traditionally had been very working class. It had been kind of seedy. It had been kind of on the on the periphery of society, you know, almost like, you know, things like pornography. I mean, and grindhouse movies and stuff like wrestling was in that vein. It was it was unsavory, you know, but then well, Vince cleaned it up and it changed. I was going to say, like sort of 70s wrestling magazines fit in with black exploitation and yes. and things Kung like food movies. Yeah, all, like all of that, like those neat, you know. The niches of pop culture that, like, I ended up studying, you know, include, you know, you can include comics in that, too, because you get, like, sort of the relaxing of the code in the early 70s. It's like they're allowed to have monsters. You know, it's it's funny when you tell, you know, we had comics on the list to talk about, so I was maybe throw this in for a second. But, like, it's funny to think that because of all the stuff in the 50s with Wortham and, and the like, that like the comics code clamped down to such an extent that like you could not even have like monster movie archetype characters like in your comics or on the cover, you know, and Marvel had to like, you know, invent the word Zuvimbi because they weren't allowed to use the word zombie, you know, and then all of a sudden there's like this relaxation in the early seventies, like along with, you know, sort of the more like adult things, like some of the, the, famous drug issues but like there's like this explosion that's when you get to Dracula and you know werewolf by night and things like that that again sort of is a little not quite lurid but it's more of that again type of thing you know hammer horror and black exploitation and grindhouse and things like that yeah and and um it was much more of an anything goes kind of environment and i think that's why wrestling in in a lot of ways people look at the 70s as kind of the heyday of territorial wrestling um not because and it's interesting because wrestling in that era was not a mainstream thing but it's important to point out it was very popular you know it's not like it's not in line with the whole mythology of like well it was only in these little vfw halls and the small crowds and it didn't do big business. It absolutely did big business, but it was still an underground thing. It had a devoted kind of cult following that was very passionate, but it wasn't something that moved in the mainstream of American culture um, like it would be later on in the 80s or like it had been in the early 50s. It really went underground. But, you know, there was a certain appeal to that. There was like a cool factor to it. Like I've talked to people on my own podcast about how it was like punk rock. You know, it was like it was cool because it wasn't mainstream, because it was this thing that the fans knew about. Like, you know, Meltzer has famously said um, in the era when Madison Square Garden was selling out every month. And you had 25,000 people in the felt forum and the garden every month. Um, 
it's possible that there weren't that many more than 25,000 people in the city limits of New York that watched the show. But the thing was, they all came out to see it live every month. That's definitely true. And then you look at, you know, and then you look at sort of like the smaller places, especially, you know, you have to point out to people, too, that sometimes they don't realize that, especially like in the southeast where wrestling, you know, what we sort of traditionally think of such a big wrestling area is how many of these places did not have professional sports teams yet. Right. So, you know, like Memphis, you know. Jerry Lawler really was the biggest sports star in Memphis because, you know, other than briefly having this, the World Football League team and, you know, and the, like the occasional college basketball star, you know, what other sports are there in Memphis? And, you know, yeah. at, you know, I mean, Atlanta didn't get the Braves until the late 60s and the same with the Falcons, so they really weren't. You know, and you know, New Orleans only had the Saints and they were, you know, famously a joke. So it's no wonder that, you know, eventually, like, JYD is probably the biggest sports star in New Orleans over anybody on the Saints. Maybe he may have been a bigger star than Archie Manning, you know, or Archie Griffith at the time. Which is funny, you know, you tell people that now, they sort of look at you funny. But it's like, yeah, these were like the biggest people in this, you know, and I was reading... um. Tim Hornbaker's book about Flair, and like you, you realize like how big a star Vern was in Minneapolis in the fifties, because you forget they didn't have the Twins and the Vikings yet. Oh yeah, he was a household name. You know, in addition He's to a being, household name, you know, you know, being like an Olympic star and everything like that, but he really didn't have you know other than maybe George Mikan, you know, and basketball wasn't. You know, a heart, you know, a blip on the radar. Then he was certainly probably a bigger star locally than George Mike, and I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, look before the expansion in Major League Baseball. I mean, baseball was basically from the East Coast out to uh, uh, St. Louis. Yeah, St. Louis. I mean, St. Louis was like the most westerly team for the longest time, Um, and you know that's also why you see um, college sports became such a part of the culture in so many parts of the country uh, because they didn't have pro teams. So the college teams were what they followed. Like, you know, I always laugh or I get into arguments with people being a native New Yorker, how for us, that's such an alien concept. Like nobody gave a damn about college sports. And it was because we had all the big, hot pro sports teams. I mean, we didn't have just one. We had two of everything, two baseball teams, two football teams, two basketball teams, two hockey teams. You know what I mean? So, like, it's such a different thing. But that was not the norm throughout most of the country in those days. But, again, by that same token, it's interesting, though, because it says a lot for somebody like Bruno San Martino, for example. He's the, he's the biggest example. Like, even in New York, even in that era, in the 60s and 70s, um, yeah, wrestling, you know, had that stink on it for sure. But Bruno San Martino still had that aura in New York as being a respected sports star. I mean, a legitimate sports star that people admired, um, even in New York City. Well, I mean, famously, you think about, 
you know, Tom Seaver did this show in yes. the late 70s called, like, Greatest Sports Legends, you know, where he's interviewing, like, Mickey Mantle and Joe Namath and whoever, and there's an episode with Bruno, you know, that Bruno was a quote-unquote sports legend. Again, you know, it helps being in the Northeast and all. But, yeah, I mean, he was certainly on the, you know, I'm sure, like, in Pittsburgh, you know, was he bigger than Clemente? Probably for a while. You know, which is just funny to think, you know, and the Steelers weren't the Steelers yet. You know, I mean, Bruno was, I guess he was in his second run, you know, by the time the Steelers had finally gotten good. But I'm sure, you know, if you, most people, if you said, you know, you can meet Franco Harris or Terry Bradshaw or you can meet Bruno, I, I bet more people probably said, I want to meet Bruno. Yeah, and he, he moved in those sports circles. Um, you know, my grandfather was a boxing coach in that era, uh, Golden Gloves, amateur fighters, but he also was, you know, moved in a lot of the pro boxing circles and things. And he would go to a lot of functions in the New York area, events, but dinners and galas and things. And he told me he remembered rubbing shoulders with Bruno a few times, that Bruno would be somebody who transcended. He would be at those things, and the boxers loved him. The sports writers loved him. Like, everybody loved him. It was just like – but again, and that also speaks to the way back then um, – and nobody did this better than the NWA did it. But back then, they would always try to have the world champion on a separate level. Like, the world champion was above the shenanigans. You know, It was almost like they were trying to cultivate this idea that – Without saying it, but the idea of, you know, uh, yeah, maybe some of these things aren't real. Maybe some of these things are for show and it's entertainment, but the world champion's real. When it, when that bell rings for the main event, that's real. You know, I think they were trying to uh, subtly hint to that all through those years. Well, I mean, you, and you look at, you know, who's champion. You know, I mean, you know, obviously you have Fez all those times and various other, like, Legit people with legit credentials, and you get Jack Briscoe, and you know Dory Funk, you know has some athletic background, but he's not, but he's also second generation, and the way and, and his style, you know is is a sports based style, you know I guess it's not really until you get to Harley, and I you know Terry maybe to an extent. I, I would say Terry Funk, yeah, is the beginning of the more kind of character world champions. But but again, you know, I'm sure Terry, you know, obviously could wrestle if he, you know, that if he was asked to maybe tone it down, like maybe if he was in St. Louis or Houston or something, you know, and they were like, you know, dial oh, it. Oh, he could, right? Yeah, he dial could it, if he had. To. Yeah, dial it back a smidge. He could if he had to. But you well, know, that's I, you know, it's not. But that's not what made Terry Funk Terry Funk. Right, and Terry Funk, and and actually Hornbaker talked about this in his NWA book, but Terry Funk was kind of like a, a, a real big shift that happened with the NWA because that was when um, uh, Sam Mushnick uh, stopped booking the world champion and Jim Barnett took over as the guy who was booking the champ, booking the title changes, you know, managing the champion's schedule and all that. And that's when you start to get the NWA world champion as the obnoxious, 
traveling heel bully that is going that every territory he's going to go to every territory and he's going to elevate the local baby face and he's going to make you want to see him lose, you know, uh, that kind of thing, which continued with Harley Race and Ric Flair. It wasn't as much of the philosophy before Terry Funk. It was more like we want the world champion to seem the most real. We want I mean, yes, he can play a subtle heel sometimes because he's got to work against heels and faces in different territories, but he's not a full-on heel. I mean, even Kaniski wasn't completely booked as a heel when he was world champion. Buddy Rogers was. He was an exception. But the idea was the world champion is above all this. We're trying to elevate the title. We're trying to make it seem important. Um, It really was this idea that the title is more important than the wrestler. We have to make sure the title is protected. Whereas in the years of Terry Funk and Harley Race and Ric Flair, it was less about protecting the title and more about elevating talent. And so that's when the standard of the NWA world champion becomes he's got to be a bad guy. And uh, I guess I'll ask this to to close this loop. Um, How often did the Sheik get booked in St. Louis then? Not often. (laughs) The Sheik and the Sheik and Muchnick did not get along um, for obvious reasons. It wasn't Muchnick's style of wrestling. You know, Muchnick was really trying to cultivate wrestling as a respectable sport. He had a lot of friends that were sports writers. He had a lot of connections in the community. And, you know, he would sometimes get embarrassed at the spectacle that pro wrestling could be. And that's why he wouldn't allow managers you know, he wouldn't allow those kind of antics. I mean, it was it was a much cleaner cut product. And the Sheik was the antithesis of that. I mean, what could you do with somebody like that? You know, and there's a famous incident where, you know, because, look, Muchnick had to work with Sheik because they were fellow promoters by this point. They were peers. And so there was some politics at play. There's a famous story where the Sheik is brought into St. Louis and Muchnick says to him, okay, we're going to put you – you have a match with Pat O'Connor. Listen, you got to wrestle this match straight. You know, we're not asking you to like not – you know, you can come out in your gimmick and all that. But you got to work this match straight. We can't have all your usual nonsense. This is St. Louis. We don't do it that way here. And the Sheik completely ignored everything that he was told to do, went out there, immediately jumped O'Connor, started throwing chairs at him, tables at him, the whole thing got himself disqualified. And basically that was the last time he ever worked in Detroit. I think, I think he was brought back only one more time and it was cause it was a previous commitment and they basically buried him on the undercard. And that was that. And, uh, you know, it just was oil and water. So to speak. Yes. <laughs> right. Does that also apply? Did, did he get booked in Houston for Paul Bosch sort of similarly? He, I'm trying to think. He he did work Houston. Um, really, the area in Texas where he was most popular was West Texas. So Amarillo, Lubbock, they loved him there. I mean, they had none of those pretensions in West Texas. I mean, wrestling was wild and woolly and insane and crazy, and it was the perfect place for the Sheik to thrive. In fact, uh, in the late 50s, even before the Sheik has his own territory – before he's a consistent main eventer, 
West Texas was the first place where he was a consistent main eventer, where they would plug him into regular main events and he would start to sell out. And it was almost like uh, the proving ground where he showed that he could do that. And I know like Lubbock in particular, um, I talked to baby doll, Nicola Roberts, who is the daughter of Nick Roberts, who was the promoter of Lubbock, who would use the, the funks, you know, talent. And she even remembered it when she was a little girl about how he was like a guaranteed sellout at the fairgrounds in Lubbock. And, um, yeah, I was going to say, you could certainly see bringing in the sheet to wrestle Dory Sr. in like some like Texas death matches, how that would be, exactly. how that, they would go perfectly together. Yeah, and, and he does that kind of thing. Like he, And they would give him a lot. Like he beat Dory Funk Sr. for, um, I forget what their main title was. It was like North American title or something. He beat him. Um, they did an angle where Dory, Dory was like a, Dory Jr. was a rookie right out of college. This was before he was even world champion, and they did an angle where the Sheik threw fire at him. You know, and he was he was like a kid. He was like a you know twenty one, twenty two year old kid, and it was a huge deal. Um, especially this is the fifties too, where he wasn't throwing fire in every single match. And so I know, like in that area, he was big. Um, not so much in the eastern part of Texas. Like I know, like he didn't really start regularly working Dallas till much later in his career. And Houston, the same. Um, I think, you know, here and there, you'll find sprinkled matches where he was coming in um, to work Houston. Uh, San Antonio, also, after he was done with his own territory, he would work a lot for Joe Blanchard. Because, I mean... I was going to say, his 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 style seems to fit, like, the Blanchard era. Yes, like the Like, the Sheep Herders, Bobby Jagger, Eric Embry era. Like, the Sheik would fit right in. There's a great match you could find where, um, you know, they did this angle where the, the classic kind of thing where Tully, right, who's who's like the top heel, Tully Blanchard, he brings in the Sheik to be his like secret weapon, you know, against the baby faces. And there's a but 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 the funny thing about it is he can't control him. It's like hilarious. He brings him in and they have a tag team match and it's Tully Blanchard and the Sheik against I forget who. And it's absolute insanity because, and I think some of this is a shoot. You could tell that Tully didn't know what the hell to do. Like he didn't know how to interact like the Sheik. It's, it's the weirdest tag team ever. The Sheik and Tully Blanchard, you know, the Sheik is doing like the prayer mat and screaming and yelling and all this. And Tully, like, you know, the announcers are selling it too. Like there's zero communication between these two guys it's just chaos, but but it was again it fit into the Sheik's whole mythos of this guy that nobody could control. That that reminds me of when Tully was briefly teaming with Abby, in like <laughs> in like mid '85 Crockett. Like I think like Paul Jones had given Tully for a while, like like to take care of Dusty or something like that. Where you get a while where you get yeah you have this weird tag team of Tully and Abby. It's it's. You know, of course, the visual makes it funny, too. Yeah, because, they're, I mean, they're both heels, but they couldn't be more different kinds of heels. You know, it's just it's not really the most natural tag team. Definitely. Um, Before we go, I figured since we're mainly just talking about history, um, we're in Observer Hall of Fame season. And I know that you 
uh, posted your votes um, a couple days ago on Twitter, and I sent mine in, but I haven't made mine public yet. So I, f I just figured uh, maybe talk about like maybe like the one or two people maybe that you voted for that you feel the most strong about that you would hope would get in this year going around. Well, one that I vote for every year, he's my cause, my pet project every year, and I understand the arguments against him, but I feel very strongly, and it's Sergeant Slaughter. I, I agree. I'm, he's not my strongest, but I, I agree that Slaughter is definitely deserving. He's in line with – because, I mean, I've been, I've been voting on The Observer for about – uh, well, close to 10 years now, but I've been reading The Observer for like 25 years. And so I would follow all the Hall of Fame balloting for years, even when I wasn't voting. And so Sarge would be one of those people like there are people who have dropped off that I can't even believe it. And one of them is Gorilla Monsoon. Another one is Fabulous Moolah, where, I, again, like you could make an argument to me, but. I just can't believe that these people would never would not be able to get enough votes. And for me, Slaughter is one of the people in that category. And I understand the argument against him is usually longevity because the period, I think, where he would m most have earned the induction is like 1980 to 85, maybe, you know, and that's short. I get it. I understand it. But. Um, I, th I think it's enough. I think one of the, one of the criteria is, and I don't have it in front of me here, but one of their criteria is like, is like impact and influence, you know, significance. And he is one of those people. He is an iconic figure and name that transcends the wrestling business. He's one of those people. And I, I know these are all like really ambiguous barometers but he's one of those people that if it was somebody that wasn't hugely tuned into pro wrestling but knew about it if you said to them yeah there's a wrestling hall of fame and this guy is not in it they would be like what the hell are you talking about <laughs> and i think sergeant slaughter is one of those people that you know a, a person that wasn't as a chapter and verse aware of every detail of his career would know enough to say, how in the heck do you have a wrestling Hall of Fame that doesn't have Sergeant Slaughter in it? I mean, that's like, you know, he's a significant name and figure. You have the G.I. Joe thing, which is nothing to laugh at. I mean, that helped make him into a mainstream cultural name, not to mention that in that five-year window, he was phenomenal. One of the best promos, one of the best characters. You know, the first guy to use entrance music in the WWF. Uh, great as a heel, better even as a babyface, you know, white hot feuds that he had. Um, I can't I, I understand in later years, you know, he kind of went on and on and on in the later years of his career in doing things that were not really Hall of Fame worthy. But but I really think that even for that hot period he had, he deserves it. So he's top on my list. The thing that I say about Slaughter is. Um, not that this like guarantees you being in, but like you said, I think he passes the grandma test. That's it. That's it. Yes. That you know, in 1986, if you had said to your grandmother, like, name a pro wrestler, you know, I mean, if she didn't say something weird like 
Luthez or you know something like that, or Bruno, you know, depending on where you are in the country, that like she would know who Sergeant Slaughter is. Yeah, man, my grandpa knew who Sergeant Slaughter was. Like not having him in there is like not having like you know um, I, I'm trying to think of so, uh, of an equivalent, but I mean like you know. All those kind of iconic stars of the 80s, he's on a level with all of them. And another one for me, because you asked me for two, this is a new one, and it was a little disappointing to me. So Meltzer started uh, now doing this thing where – which I think is a good idea – where tag teams, you could have people that have gone in as a singles. Um, If they were a part of a tag team, they could go in separately for that tag team. You know, because when he wasn't doing that, it eliminated certain important teams, you know. And so one of them who that should have been absolutely first ballot without question going in was Antonino Rocca and Miguel Perez. And he put them on the list like two years ago. And um, even he thought and I think maybe he didn't have the biggest grip on his votership, but even he thought they were going to be a shoe in and they were not. Um, and I think I don't know. I think that's a travesty. I mean, they were probably the the biggest drawing tag team of all time. You know, they, they'd ha- at least have to be up there with the Road Warriors in that category in New York. I mean, they were, you know, they were box office gold for like close to a decade uh, at a time when you didn't even have a world champion in the territory because you didn't need one. Um it's a no-brainer, but again, it's because you don't – I don't know. I think it has to do with the way the voting is tabulated. I think that for um, people that are historical to that degree, I think you might need to just focus on the historians to vote on those people, You know, and I think that would help because well, uh, the, otherwise this is going to keep happening every year when you've got like – you know, they tabulate these things and it's like they break it down and you look at like current wrestlers in the business who vote. You know, these are guys in their 20s, 30s, 40s. And like none of them are voting for these old time figures because they don't even know who the hell they are. I know I've heard some people suggest like, you know, Dave likes to compare it to Cooperstown that, yes. you know, that maybe we've reached a point where there should be a veterans committee. Or, you know, we've had this thing, I don't know when it started happening, but now every so often he just puts somebody in by fiat Yes. that, like, he's been presented with enough research by somebody he respects to say, this is a historical oversight, you know, this is somebody who, like, should have been already in. So... I mean, I personally, like, my number, I agree with you about Rock and Perez, by the way. I, I voted for them, too. I voted for them, like, both years they've been on the ballot or however many years. To me, the person that most applies to is Roy Welch. Like, yes, how Roy, I voted for him, too. How Roy Welch did not get put in the first year with everybody, you know what I mean? That it's, I mean, it's like... Even before, like, we've now had, like, two or three years of Ron Fuller telling all these stories and, and I guess, you know, maybe taking them with a grain of salt about, like, the, the like, Roy's accomplishments or whatever. Uh, but, 
you know, yeah, you can look at, like, you know, the stuff that Tim's done in his... You know, the fact that, you know, he controlled, like, him and Nick Goulas controlled, like, 15 states and thousands of wrestlers or whatever, and, you know, whatever he probably invented. And, like, yes, he was a probably a poor payoff guy and whatever. And I don't know if it's because he was partners with Nick that he felt he would need to put Nick into with Roy. You know, like, well, maybe that was, yeah. like, his initial thought. But it's like, you know, to me, and I think to a lesser extent, I think, you know, Morris Siegel falls in the same category. Yes. That I don't and, know if he should have been like an automatic automatic, but when you look at the people who were promoting that long, I mean, yes, it took Don Owen a long time to get in, but, you know, that's also like, you know, a small niche territory that survived and did okay business, but not great. But Don Owen was also always a good payoff guy. And, you know, he did it for 50. It's like, shouldn't being a promoter for 50 years and being successful at whatever level that is like warrant you just being in the hall of fame like i mean how successful could he have been just running in portland i mean that's not a territory where you know he's going to do the kind of money that like like vince did or Vern did because you know he's got seattle and portland you know but for where he was you know, he did enough, sort of like, you know, however much, you know, you know, Ron, however much money like Ron made just running Knoxville, you know, and getting, you know, again, if you believe Ron, and I'm sure Les could probably back this up, that if Knoxville did the same, the kind of TV ratings that he said they did, which are pretty much the same that Memphis got, but yet, you know, we constantly laud Memphis for always, you know, quoting these, you know, primetime television ratings on Saturday morning on Channel 5, it's like if Knoxville did the same thing, it's like, but we never talked about it, or we didn't talk about it until Ron was out there making the case for it. Right, I think that's why some of the voting needs to be, like, more specialized. Like, people can only vote, kind of like what the Academy Award does, like, um, for certain awards, like, you can only vote for best short film if they verify that you've watched all the short films, you know, or like the people who vote on the directors, you know, the, the final winner, you know, they're all directors, you know, there, there's certain qualifications. And I think there should maybe be something like that for this, because a lot of it too is historical bias. That's hard to beat unless you're somebody with a knowledge of history. Like you mentioned Morris Siegel. I mean, um, look, I'm way too young to remember Morris Siegel, but to be honest with you, I'm also way too young to even remember Paul Bosch. But and, and so maybe that gives me the distance to look at it and say, clearly Morris Siegel was an even bigger figure in Houston wrestling and Texas wrestling than Paul Bosch was. I mean, Morris see, Paul Bosch is more recent. You know, Paul Bosch is 60s, 70s, 80s. But Morris Siegel, when he was in charge, Houston was the center of all of Texas wrestling. He wasn't just running Houston. He was booking the whole damn state of Texas. And that changed when Paul Bosch took over. And it became more of like a one-city territory, and Bosch was relying on talent from other booking agencies. So, I mean, if Paul Bosch is in, then absolutely Morris Siegel has to be in. You know, uh, some of these people, though, they're also shadowy figures like Roy Welch was a shadowy figure, and he wanted it that way. Nick Goulas was, 
the face. He was the front of the of the organization. And so there wasn't as much of an awareness of Roy Welch or like even uh, another one I fight for a lot is Stanley Weston because I'm on the non-wrestler list because I'm always like, I love Bill Apter. Bill Apter is a personal friend of mine. He's a fabulous man. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, and he is. Bill Apter would tell you Stanley Weston should have gone in way before him and should definitely be in there now. But again, a lot of people don't know who Stanley Weston was. And I think, and again, you have the thing where it's Dave's awards. Like, Dave set the criteria. Dave put in all the initial class. And again, you have Dave's biases, whether they're conscious or unconscious. I mean, my vote leans heavily Southern because that's a lot of what I'm interested in now. And there are people that I vote for that are probably marginal, like Bob Armstrong and Stomper. But I think because like that's such an undercovered area in Observer history because, you know, Dave didn't talk to the Fullers. So, you know, like I always, you know, I see this probably every time this comes up on the podcast. I'm sure people are sick of hearing it because I always bring it up. But the fact that Dave did Bob, Bob Armstrong's obituary and like 75% of it was about like his like six month feud in Georgia because that's what Dave saw when like he had like, you know, like two decades of working in Knoxville and Alabama that like Dave kind of knew about. But again, also we didn't have the TV. So it's like, it's, you know, and you know, again, if you, you know, if they're doing the business that they said they did, like, you know, okay, Bob Armstrong homesteaded in Alabama, except for like a couple of different times. Again, he didn't need to go anywhere because of how much money they were making and his family was in Pensacola. You know, why didn't Ole go anywhere besides the Carolinas and Georgia? Because he didn't have to, because if he's making $100,000 a year in like 1976, why does he want to go anywhere else? And I think that's something that also hurt Gorilla, uh, if you're looking at it from a purely wrestling career point of view, is that he never, you know, uh, once he hunkered down in the WWF, uh, he stayed there, you know, and he would do these occasional runs and things, but that was it. I mean, he came, you know, he started wrestling in 1960. He came to the WWF in 63. He went away for in like 65 and 66 to California. He came back and then he never left. So, I mean, I think that kind of hurt him uh, from that point of view. But I don't think that that should be the roadblock that it is because so many great performers did that back then. Not everybody was touring nationally. I mean, there were people like Bob Armstrong was a superhero in his part of the country. You know, it's like somebody like a Mr. Wrestling 2 who was like a like a folk hero, but in a certain part of the country. Um, the Junkyard Dog is another one that I vote for every year, and I know it was only for a couple of years. I get it, but like we've said here just before, he was the be-all and end-all in that territory um, by far, not just in wrestling, but culturally. And I think that means something. I don't think you have to be a national star to be in the Hall of Fame. 
I mean, like, realistically, what was the difference between Bob Armstrong homesteading in Knoxville and Alabama and Jerry Lawler homesteading in Memphis? Other than Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett, you know, were friendly with Dave, and Lance was friendly with Dave. Yeah, and and you can't underestimate the fact that Memphis wrestling was, like, the hottest – you know, territory for tape traders. Like that was what everybody wanted back then. It was like the thing that you had to see. It was like what ECW later became, you know, and that made, I think that's what added to the mystique of Lawler too, which is like, everybody got to see him that, you know, we're all these like smart fans. Whereas not so much the case with a Barb Armstrong. No. And one of the things when we were talking earlier about sort of the mystique of the seventies is I think a lot of that is most of that we don't have footage for. It's like, you know, how much 70s, you know, we get these clips from Florida, you know, that are like a minute long or two minutes long or, you know, whatever gets posted on YouTube, you know, and who knows what's actually in Vince's library. You know, I don't know if, you know, it's one of those things you were privy to back in your time about what's actually in the library for certain promotions, but, you know, like certain promotions that I think became darlings is because of how much footage we have. It's like, no question. All it's like, you know, we have like almost all of the mid South footage from 1981 when Bill Watts, you know, buys the territory or however you want to say it up until he sells to Crockett. I mean, you could buy it. You could, you could buy it from, you know, Bill Watts, son online, you know, and now, you know, it's all on the network. All of, you know, almost all of world class is out there and on the network. You know, and Memphis was, you know, probably largely because of Cornette. You know, there's so much Memphis out there. And again, you said, like, it was the tape trading darling. And, you know, and there's, but, you know, there's holes in Memphis that we don't have. And, you know, I asked Cornette that once. I was like, you know, do you have contingency plans for your library? (laughs) I mean, I'm sure, you know, it probably will go to Brian, you know, or, you know, the him and Brian, you know, because I think they spent like a long 45 minute segment talking on the podcast about that when I asked that question about, you know, what's actually, because I said, you know, there's, you know, famously holes in people's collections. And, you know, Cornette basically said, yeah, I probably have that. You know what I mean? That there's these things and he's probably, you know, he's got, and he's got the Memphis stuff, not like the. You know, for like a lot of stuff later where we only have the hour version from like Evansville or wherever that we don't get a lot of like the, the Memphis only stuff that got cut out for Cindy for the bicycle. But and, you know, and we have all this Mid-South stuff, <coughs> although we you know we don't have local and you know, we don't have a lot of local promos. But, you know. You know, Southeastern famously has these large holes, even in Continental, once you get to, like, 85, where you think we have everything. The fact that, you know, Crispy now is finding stuff, which is great. You know, like, you know, whatever, you know, this this master tape list for whoever he's been trading with to get some of this stuff. You know, I, you know, I was, for a while, I was doing a project where I was doing, like, the week-by-week stuff reviewing Continental TV when it changed over. I was doing it for about six weeks, and we got to the big Bob Armstrong, Robert Fuller angle, and we don't have, like, the three weeks of TV, like, right before and after. So I'm like, well, this kind of, 
you know, puts a damper on this project when I don't have, like, the most famous angle in this territory. But, like, now we have it. Like, he magically found it somehow. So we have it now. I mean, like, it's not the world's greatest footage. You know, we didn't have Bob Arm. You know, we didn't have a lot of Bob Armstrong's heel turn until recently. You know, and now we do. <coughs> so, you know, I like to think I am. You know, Ron is certainly the lion's share of it, but like, I like to think that I'm part of the reason there's been like some sort of like, like renewed appreciation for Southeastern Continental, because I'm one of the people that talk about it all the time. Certainly. It's a lot better than, like, the two or three lines that Dave used to give it in The Observer back then. And certainly, the way he magically became in love with Continental once Eddie Gilbert and Paul Heyman started turning up there, because, you know, being prime Melter sources, that's, <laughs> you know, it's, that's another thing. It's like, when you go back and you read this and you, like, listen to Chris and Bix's show, it's like, you start seeing these biases that, like, you maybe didn't notice at the time, or that we know now. Oh, one of the reasons, like, this myth got permutated in The Observer was because we didn't know that Dave was talking to Flair and Dave was talking to Terry Taylor and Dave was talking to Coronet and talking to Eddie Gilbert and Paul Heyman. It's like, now it makes a lot more sense when you read this coverage. And, you know, it's like everything. It's like, you know, you, you have to learn to, you know, trust your sources and, like, even like with documentaries, it's like, what's the agenda of a documentary? Because documentary is not truth. Documentary is what the filmmakers, the story that the documentary filmmakers want to tell. Not necessarily, right. it's not, it's not the objective truth, quote unquote. And the same, and it's the same way with the, the Hall of Fame, like we're talking about that, <coughs> you know, that you know when people that Dave's friends with, that he's been promoting for years. When they come up on the ballot, they're probably going to get in on the first time, not taking, a, you know, in an absolute sense, whether or not they deserve it is sort of not germane to the question. It's just when certain people, you know, is there any doubt that the Bucks are going to get in this year with, you know, an overwhelming, I mean, you know, they named their finisher after Dave, for goodness sake. You I know, don't vote for anybody who is currently active. I, that I, is that is right out for me only because I'm there are tons of them that will deserve to get in one day. But there are such a logjam of historical people that I cannot justify voting for somebody who's currently in their prime. It's crazy to me. I, I agree with you, although I did make one exception this year. Because I think you have to put an asterisk by it. And then I voted for Blue Panther. Because I think one, if American wrestlers never retire until they're forced to by injury, luchadors certainly never retire. Right. They, they, no, they, I, they I get that. Yeah, they I, be, I can... they be, so I said, I was talking to one of my friends, and I said, okay, this is going to be my new rule. That, like, if you're over 60 <laughs> and are basically part-time, I think it's okay to vote. Like, I can morally justify voting for them. Yeah, but like, I think it's more it's more I'm talking about people who are in the prime of their careers. Like it's mind-boggling to me that a Kenny Omega would get in now. I would never vote for a CM Punk or a Roman Reigns or somebody like that. These are people that are main eventing on national television now or at least Punk, you know, up until very recently. I cannot justify that in American wrestling. It it makes 
zero sense to me when it would be one thing if all the really worthy people of the past had already gone in and you're going like, okay, well, let's look at some of these guys now. I can't justify voting for, you know, the young bucks when Rocca and Perez aren't in. That's madness to me. Well, it's the kind of thing, too, where, I mean, we joke about wrestlers never retire unless you're Jack Briscoe. But, like, even now, when I joked, I said, you know, people don't retire because of injury. Now, I think he's a borderline candidate. But, like, let's say Edge. Let's say Edge had a better career than the good career that he had. And he, Edge was also retired for a decade. Let's not forget that, right, too. Right, but, but, but he was retired because of, like, a serious neck injury. So you think he's done. So, like, if you were to go by, say, the Cooperstown rule, like Dave wants to, you know, like, you would have, if you thought Edge was deserving five years ago, then you're like, well, he had a Hall of Fame career, and he's now retired, and he's not coming back, so I don't mind voting for him. Little, little <clears throat> and, tweaks would help. Little tweaks, like, um, you know, because you mentioned, you know, somebody like an Edge uh, and, and, and Cooperstown. Um, you know, baseball is such a different thing because – Dave has the rule that, like, it has to be 15 years. Isn't that what it is? 15 years since you debuted. Now, in baseball, that's fine because, you know, like, in wrestling, very often 15 years, you're just getting warmed up 15 years into your career. Like, you're in your peak. You're in your prime. You're drawing your prime money. Whereas in baseball, that is definitely not the case. Like, you don't need a decade to warm up in baseball. If you do, then you're not very good at it. You know what I mean? In baseball, it's easy easy to tell very early in a career that somebody is an immense talent, and that's because baseball is not entertainment. Baseball is a sport. So they're not putting on a show. They're competing and trying to win. So it's a different thing. So I, I don't think you can have the same exact rules. So even if people don't want to follow my – like personal rules of I'm not going to vote for anybody who's current. Um, I think just a slight tweak, and I've said this before, of saying instead of 15 years since you debuted, if you said 25 years since you debuted, I think that would eliminate a lot of that stuff, and I think it would make it easier. Because even then you can look and you could say, okay, I could vote for an edge. I could vote for a Dustin Rhodes. That guy's been around forever. I get it. But I'm not going to vote for somebody who started wrestling in 2008. No, and if you go by the, I think they have to be 35, well, it's like, well, it's, you know, if you're like somebody that played college football and then maybe had a couple, like maybe like right. one, or, one or two years in the NFL, okay, so you're not actually becoming, you're not actually starting your wrestling career until you're 25. Yeah, and you're done by that by 35. You, you know what I mean? Whereas in wrestling, you're in your prime at 35. You know, or if you're in like a weird thing where you're, you know you're like a lucha candidate and you start wrestling when you're you know like however old you know Rey Mysterio was, 15, 16, what you know Terry Gordy, and so like you've actually had your 15 years as a pro before you're 35. As funny as that sounds, you know, but right. It's, I, no, I agree with you. I agree that, you know, I do not vote for, like you said, Roman Reigns is like the biggest star in the company and has been world champion for like four years. Like, if there's anybody that like, 
should not go in the Hall of Fame yet. And then he's even even then he's you know an arguable candidate depending on who you talk to. But now I agree with what what Carl Stern says because he did his Hall of Fame shows this week. He thinks like the Observer Hall of Fame should be more comparable to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame than the Baseball yes, Hall of Fame. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Because it's all aesthetic choices, and it's like. You know, especially, you know, since, you know, one of Dave's criteria is, like, in-ring work rate. Well, okay, well, like, if you translate, okay, but that's Dave's standards. You know what I mean? Like, I more and more as my tastes have matured, you know, I like less and less what Dave prefer, Dave's preferred style. You know, it's like, do I like you know, Haas wrestling, not, that's not my cup of, you know, but it's like, you know, Vader, Bigelow, Gordy, you know, people like that, you know, that's people's preferred style. Not necessarily you're like high flying around, you know, flippy doos as people call them now, you know, and, and like, you know, to me, like, I'm more. I, I prefer more to like look at psychology and how you how you work a match, not what you do in a match. Right. That's but, what like Larry Zabisco is one of the all-time great workers in my estimation. But uh, or even you know we keep talking about Lawler. It's like Lawler definitely. I mean, I remember it was a big deal that like Larry Matisek didn't put Lawler in like his fifty best wrestlers, hundred best wrestlers, whatever it was, and he was like. Well, Lawler can't wrestle. That's uh, the Sam Muchnick effect. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, but, like, you know, if you apply, like, Dave's standards to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like, does that mean, like, if you're, like, a bad guitar player or a bad singer, but you sell, you have, like, ten gold records, you're not, you know, in the you know, like okay, so Steely Dan and Rush go in because they're technically proficient, quote unquote. You know, it's it's a weird thing to sort of like apply, like the wrestling standards even to like the Rock and Roll Fame, which is like the most applicable. And you know, and they have the whole thing too, where it's, you know, you get pe- this weird thing now where people get put in multiple times. You know, what I mean, like. How many times is Shawn Michaels in the WWF Hall of Fame? Like three different times now, or so, you know, or Kevin Nash is in a couple different ways, and Flair's in, I think, twice, and Flair's but... in twice. I think I don't think anybody's gone in three times yet. I could be wrong on that, but it's certainly possible that it could happen. Which is I, which is weird. Like again, when you talk about the tag team thing, where and then another thing that I was talking to Carl about is this one, you know, like longevity is an important thing to the Observer Hall of Fame. Well, it's like, but tag teams don't have longevity until, like, the modern era, really. It's like, other than, and even then, when you had long-running tag teams, you didn't always have the same two guys. Like, how many years of the Assassins were, it was it only Tom Ernesto and Jody Hamilton versus once it became... Jody Hamilton and someone else. Right. That's it, interesting too. But is that some of those 
Is yeah. that still like if they put the assassins in the Hall of Fame, quote unquote, or the, or the Infernos, or so you know what I mean? There's like, been like ten of them, twelve of them. Like he put the Midnight Express in. Like, does that include Randy Rose and Norval Austin? Does that include Wendy Richter, who was briefly, technically, a member of the Rock, of the Midnight Express in like 1984? <laughs> you know, or. You know, does her, is I mean, Hercules Hernandez is in as an assassin. You know, just these weird things. And then, I you know, people talked about that. Well, one of the reasons Dave didn't want tag teams is because of, I guess, what you could call the Rocket and Perez effect, where one guy is a huge star and the other one is a lesser star. Or, Doesn't matter. Or you know, it's the yeah, it's the act. It's like it's the act exactly. It's like. Ricky Morton and Ken Lucas may have been a better technical tag team, but Morton and Lucas aren't in the Hall of Fame, but Morton and Gibson are. Because the, like, I had trouble. I think I didn't vote for them this year, but, like, I think last year I voted for the Fabs. But it's like, for that short period, you know what I mean? Like, the first run... You know, when they are, like, outdrawing Lawler on certain shows in Memphis, but then it's like it kind of gets watered down. It was like they go to the AWA, and it doesn't really work, and it's like how many times they came back, and then they're he Like, it's like if you were just talking about the Fabs and, like, their first run in Memphis and then, like, their brief run in, in, in Houston, it's like I could say, yes, they're a Hall of Fame team, but, like, when you start looking at the whole thing, because it's like, other than like Morton and Gibson, and maybe the Road Warriors, like how many tag teams stayed together before the modern era, like the modern WWF expansion era? Yeah, I mean, you had them, but it's still not a reason to, I mean, you had like the Fabulous Kangaroos and, you know, the Sharp Brothers, and I, I, I'm, I'm thinking both of those teams are in, but I mean, uh, that still shouldn't prohibit you know and i and i think that there are accommodations for that in the voting if i remember right i don't think the tag teams i think there's an understanding uh that a lot of them you know they're not expected to to be together for like 20 years but there's a certain uh there is a certain amount but i don't remember what it is but i think some of that is built into it but still i understand what you're saying yeah, I think, but, yeah, so I'll, I'll be curious to see how things go this year. Like, I'm curious to see if this new way of voting will affect, because as people have pointed out, like, weirdly last year, nobody from North America got in. Like, it was, like, Mystico got in, but that's a separate category, and then everybody else was Japanese, I think. Yeah, and and that would always, I mean, that would drive me nuts. I remember, and it, a lot of people I know too. I mean, like going back years, when you would look at, and and I know he's he's changed some of the voting this year, and I'm hoping it's going to help some of the way that the voting occurs, because you would look at this ballot and you'd see these like major stars, major North American stars, people that should be no brainers, and year after year, and you'd see who went in. And it would be like a bunch of Japanese guys, you know, and it made you want to pull your hair out of your head. 
not that there's anything wrong with those guys, but like you're thinking, who, who the hell's voting on this thing? Are the, is the votership strictly in Japan? Like what, what, what are the standards here? And so I think there's been a little change in that. If you noticed on the ballot this year, I think a big change where instead of saying it used to be you have all these categories, you have historical, modern, you have, you know, Europe and Mexico and Japan. And here's the amount of people you can vote for, whatever it is, total, all total. Whereas this year, what he did was he gave you the chance to vote for a certain maximum within each category, which enabled a lot more people names to be put on the ballot. And I think that is going to help to to relieve some of this. At least I'm hoping we'll see what happens when 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 it's tabulated this year. I agree because I've always been a big haul guy when talking about regular sports hall of fames like you know like if i were to vote for like cooperstown i probably would realistically try to put as many like try to put all 10 people like try to put 10 people on if i could but uh like i think like on my ballot it's like i maxed out in every category except modern because again i'm not voting for active people so and there were even people in the historic category I kind of had to make a choice, you know, where I think there was somebody I voted for last year I didn't vote for this year just because I was debating about Steamboat and Youngblood. We talked about longevity. I did end up voting for them. But that's a team that was really three years maybe, if that. Right. But they were so big, and again, that also goes to voting for Slaughter. Because when you vote for when you vote for like a red hot feud, you you got to give both people credit. So you know you got to credit you know Slaughter and Kernodal and Steamboat and Youngblood, you know for that length of that feud and you know you talk about like historical significance when like when you run a show that is not only super no vacancies sold out but they have to close the highway because people can't get there. I mean, it's like that kind of deserves some kind of recognition. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, and that's like sort of like the, the one of the most legendary matches of, of the 80s. And I think in some ways it led to kind of like Starcade and a lot of other things that came after it. Well, I think it certainly was like, hey – if we had closed circuit, you know, one, we could have sold tickets to all these people. And it's, especially when you're like a fairly big territory like Mid-Atlantic was, you know what I mean, where you're going for all the way from South Carolina to Richmond. You know what I mean? That's, you know, that's quite a haul. I mean, enough that, you know, they used to have, you know, three, they at a time had three crews running three different states. You know, like in sort of like the 60s and 70s, I think. So, yeah, definitely. I think that was sort of like the grand granddaddy before the granddaddy of them all for, for Starcade. But yeah, I will definitely be. I will definitely be interested to see how how this new voting method shakes out. But I, I, I do think for. I mean, I think Slaughter was close last year, so I think. I think that will probably be enough to get him in this year, hopefully. I hope so, because he's going to drop off if he doesn't get voted in this year. 
Um, he's one of the names that'll drop off, which again, mind boggling. Yeah. So, uh, thanks a lot, uh, for doing the show today. Like, um, I'm glad we were finally able to get our schedules coordinated. And like I said, we have a lot of stuff that we did even get to. It's like, I know it's Halloween time. I know you've been posting a lot online about, uh, scary movies. We didn't get to talk about any of that. We hardly did any comic stuff. I know you've written some comic book books too. That we that we could definitely uh, put on the table for next time, but uh, we were talking about the sheep book. So why don't you talk about some of the some of your other books? Sure. I mean, uh, uh, so I've I've done several books on pro wrestling. So I've got the Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik, and my other wrestling books are the Pro Wrestling FAQ, which I did uh, almost ten years ago now, which is like a reference book. Uh, on anything you ever wanted to know about wrestling. You know, it's got a lot of history in there and great photos. And then when I worked for WWE, I did a book for them called WWE Legends, which the idea behind that book, and I can't believe they greenlit it, but I wanted to do like a, a profiles of all the major stars in the capital WWF, WWF territory prior to uh, the national expansion. So people who had who made the, the biggest part of their name took place, you know, prior to Hulk Hogan and WrestleMania and who were like very closely identified with that territory. And because I wanted to do especially back then, there wasn't a lot that was being done about those figures. And so and that was the first book I ever did. And in addition to the wrestling books, I've got a couple of books that I did which are non wrestling related. And one is the Godzilla FAQ, which is all about. The uh, Godzilla movies, of course, and other giant monster movies, too, sprinkled in there. And my most recent book, actually, is not a wrestling book. It's called Superheroes, the History of a Pop Culture Phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. And again, it's another one of those, like, kind of single-volume reference books. Um, this time, it's all about superhero fiction. And a lot of that is comic books, but it's more than just comics. It's just the whole phenomenon of the superhero in popular culture. Um, and right now I'm working on the Gorilla Monsoon biography, Irresistible Force. Yeah, we'll definitely have to talk. Uh, as someone who like went to grad school to study popular culture and did a lot with comics, we, we can definitely have we can definitely get in the weeds for uh, for that. It'd be like a podcast that like maybe me, you, and my friend Jess Evans would listen to. But uh, it would definitely be interesting to us. I Why think. not? Why not? So, yeah, so uh, everybody check this out. Oh, and uh, plug the podcast. Yeah, sure. So my show is called Shut Up and Wrestle, and it's part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network, which is probably is definitely best known for the Jim Cornette podcasts, but it also has the 605 Super Podcast. It's got uh, Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam, Breaking Kayfabe, uh, the Mid-Atlantic Podcast, those kind of things. And so my show is on there. And it is a an old school themed show, and I have different guests every week, which means like whatever the the guest wants to talk about is our subject for the week. So this whole definition of old school it could mean anything. Like I've had people on there talking to me about the Attitude Era, and I've had people on there where we talk about you know Joe Stecker and, and George Hackenschmidt. So it could go anywhere depending on what people's areas of expertise are i've been doing it for about a year and a half now and i love it you know it's on all the usual platforms shut up and wrestle 
and the website for it is suawpod.com. Great. Everybody, check out all of Brian's stuff. Um, Thanks again for your time, and we will talk to everybody next time.